This episode is surely for the skeptics. It was quite a mind-expanding episode for me. UFOs have become all the rage in town. Everybody seems to be talking about it. The government, intelligence agencies, and top researchers and scientists are now openly studying this phenomena at reputable institutions without risking their careers. Just last year alone, the Pentagon released over 400 reports of military personnel surrounding UFO encounters. My own introduction to this paradigm was about two decades ago, watching the cult classic show, The X-Files. If you've watched this show, you know that one of the main themes of the show was that there is a reality to UFO phenomena and alien encounters, and the powers to be are suppressing the true narrative. While looking at what's happening today, it seems like there was a lot of truth to that. So recently, I had the privilege of speaking with Mr. Keith Thompson, who is a brilliant journalist, phenomenal storyteller, and author. I came across his classic book, Angels and Aliens, which he wrote in 1991, and I was blown away by the unprejudiced way in which he looked at UFO encounters and various phenomena. I think Keith has some phenomenal insights on the subject, and if you're curious about the history of UFO phenomena, how it's observed in different civilizations and cultures, who are the key people who are researching this phenomena today, and why is it that if not the whole truth certain aspects of the truth were clearly suppressed, then this episode is for you. And before we turn to the conversation, I would like to request that you please like the video and share it with your friends, subscribe to the channel as we're competing with the YouTube algorithms. And if it's not too much to ask, please leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify, where this episode is released a week before it's released on YouTube, so you can catch it sooner. Okay, thank you and enjoy. Keith, thank you for being with me today. Well, Kanan, it's great to be here. I enjoy what you're doing on your podcast. I'm a big fan of Thomas Kuhn's work on paradigms and paradigm shifts and how they happen. And it's just, a, I've, I like the episodes I've seen of your work. So let's just get down and have ourselves a good old-fashioned conversation today. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much. The name of the podcast, Potential Paradigm, is about these emergent uh, paradigms that we very much need in all the current collapsing paradigms. I use the word apocalypse, which in the wider notion of the culture means like gloom and doom, but actually the etymology refers to the revelation of truth. Yes. As the truth is being revealed, we will have a new landscape of new paradigms. So yeah, let's get into this incredible paradigm. And I want to know how did you, what inspired you to get started in this? Good question. If somebody had told me at the time when I first paid attention to UFOs, that I, would be, that I would be spending really much of my life writing about this, not singularly, but continuously with starts and fits over time, I would have said, nah, nah not me. That's not, that's, you got the wrong guy. Because I don't come at it from a science fiction background. I can't tell you how many Star Trek episodes I've seen. I've never was particularly a big fan of, of that. I don't come at it from Star Wars or Star Trek or and I love Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think it's still the best film ever made. But I'll, so I'll tell you how I came about this, how I came to, to track this subject. I was in elementary school in Northwest Ohio, and there was a format we had in my class in the sixth grade where we would take turns doing current events presentations. And the idea was on a certain day, Miss Webb or Mr. Johnson or Mr. Thompson, the teacher would call us by our full name sometimes, 
would be would bring a news story to the class that you had been tracking and be the reporter, be the anchor person, tell both sides, whatever turned you on. So there was a UFO flap, F-L-A-P, a UFO series of events going on in Dexter, Michigan, just north of my state of Ohio. And it was about three or four days and continuous, some remarkable objects, apparent craft, lights, anomalous behavior. It was at a time when national news was, CBS Evening News, for example, was, was anchored by Walter Cronkite, one of the great newsmen of American history. And I found myself watching the nightly news during that week because Cronkite would come on with his great style and say, good evening, welcome to the CBS Evening News. The Michigan UFO flap is still happening. This is the third day we're going to go to Bob Schieffer in Detroit. Bob, what's the latest? And that was the way the news was delivered in those days. And I was just glued to the set. So Bob Schieffer was the reporter on the ground, and he reported how a, an Air Force investigator named J. Allen Hynek who would, be, who would become famous in the UFO mythology for his role as, a, as an investigator. He worked for, worked for the Air Force, and he came into the UFO field thinking these events will probably be explicable, though they would be able to explain them, and he thought that would be in the service of good science to do so. He wasn't a debunker. He wasn't trying to pretend they were real. He assumed they wouldn't be real. So Heine came in, and he was a great character, decent, thorough, and sincere. He spent three or four days on the ground, talked to witnesses, visited where the sightings were held, including down in some marshy areas where swamps were active. And he finally held a news conference and stood behind a podium, and they said, what's going on? How do you explain this? And this is from the time when we thought the experts we're going to deliver the truth from on high, which is for 80 years, we've believed that. And we're still in to some extent in that phase. Heineck paused and he said, I can't explain all of them, but I think there's a certain number of them down by the Jones swamp that could be swamp gas. Now, swamp gas is a real natural phenomenon yes. where vegetation decomposes in the water and gives off luminosity, but nothing like what was really being reported. He gave a very limited answer. And he told the story later, and I told the story about him telling the story. He told the story later about how he was simply crestfallen when he uttered the phrase swamp gas, and he saw all the reporters jump out of their seats, run out to pay phones, call their news bureaus and say, Heineck says it's swamp gas. Case closed. That's not what he had done. But that's what was reported as being done. The national news jumped on and it said, this is not accurate. This is not what the people of Western Michigan have been reporting. To me, this was fascinating because I was watching the reports of really sincere and credible witnesses bearing witness to something mysterious, then apparently an expert from on high seemingly coming down and saying, it's not anything but swamp gas. And then that stirred a response, a call for government 
action. So and when it comes to my role in this, I told the story in my current events section. And one of the students afterwards said, so do you think they're flying saucers? And I remember finding the question a little off. I thought, we don't know what they are. I mean, they don't, we don't know what they are. But the real story here is how the experts have simply dismissed it, have pushed it away. That's what's, to me, the real story. But yeah, but what do you think they are? I mean, it was a, one of my fellow students said, I don't know, but it's worth investigating. And I remember my teacher, Mrs. Lowry, said, I think what Mr. Thompson is saying to us, and I think the, the Mr. Thompson response, and I thought, wow, this is good. She said, I think what Mr. Thompson is saying, it's important to keep an open mind. It's important to follow the evidence and put our theories and explanations to the side. And I remember, Kenan, that I, at that time, it was probably one of the most decisive experiences of my life of being seen and being heard. I was treated like an adult. I was an aspiring adult, 12 years old. And my teacher, who was not trying to rescue me, but simply was representing what I was saying and the point, she goes, and I'll never forget, I haven't forgotten, I don't know if I'll never forget, but I certainly have not forgotten. She said, Mr. Thompson, excellent work. You have the makings of a good reporter or maybe a scientist or maybe a detective. But the point is, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I thought, I have been seen, I have been heard, and I can't say that I was committed to following this phenomenon. I didn't go to UFO groups. I didn't become a ufologist, but I continued to pay attention. And my aspiration was to write. I became a journalist, began to publish stuff. And so it became natural when the time came to when my thinking felt ripe to finally put together the book, Angels and Aliens, and to do it from a standpoint that I think I really modeled, had the opportunity to model in the sixth grade. It really acquainted me with the idea that a detective and a scientist and a journalist are all in different ways looking for the answers. And the point is to follow the evidence wherever it leads. And so with that as my intro, I would say I have attempted to bear witness to this to follow the evidence wherever it leads. And there are things about the phenomenon that can't be explained in conventional terms. That doesn't mean we take that evidence off the table. It means we expand our maps. We put on the kind of, we use the kind of instruments, instrumentation, so to speak, that is appropriate to the phenomenon, rather than ignore the parts of the phenomenon that don't fit our ways of looking. So I've always had a natural orientation to a certain kind of uh, I would say, I, I'll, I'll never, I, that's, that's one more point. I didn't realize it at the time as a sixth grade student. I never heard the word empiricist. I never met the work of William James until I went off to college and encountered his thinking on what he called radical empiricism. And James held the view there was nothing that was not amenable to empirical research that could not be observed. Anything that can be observed, anything that can, any experience can be amenable to an empirical approach, meaning the five senses and beyond the five senses. It doesn't matter. So I have always described my work as empirical, and empiricism simply at its most radical says that everything is experience. Some experience feels more like mind. Some experience feels more matter, but it's all experience. 
So with that as my framework, I'm a radical empiricist who is open to following this wherever it goes. I love it. Yeah, radical empiricist. I, I really enjoyed the background you gave and the definition of empirical, as you said, the five senses and beyond. And yeah, there is just so much here that you share, which is so excellent. So, so maybe a couple of things that came to me. I came, perhaps it's important to say here, is I came to find your work through your interview that actually happened perhaps in 1991 or it was it 1986? Uh, 1991, you meet with Jeff yeah. Michelin. Yeah, with Jeffrey Michelin. And this was perhaps recently, like six months or so ago, that I got exposed to Jeffrey Mishlov's work. And what was mind-blowing there was just how long he's been doing this. And then when I saw your interview, it just brought back this love of UFOs that was in my teens. And then to make a brief, I just put it on the back seat. And more recently, I've been on the spiritual journey. But watching your interview just connected the two worlds together. And it exactly what you what you were sharing, it brought in me the hidden motivations that I had that I wasn't aware of as to why I was so inspired to see UFOs, in my case, through X-Files and Star Trek and all of that. I always wanted some, I was trying to connect with the beyond. And perhaps just like yourself, I was very open-minded. But yeah, so it, it was just a lot of light switches went there. And one of the things that came to my mind was, I wish I had heard from Keith back in 1991 when I was into that, because what was there was a taboo and dismissiveness. And I was back in back on the Indian subcontinent, so it was a little different there. But at the same time, I think just an exposure to your work can literally transform the youth. Just as you're sharing this beautiful story of your teacher validating you and saying, Mr. Thompson and I mean, I can just imagine the independence and like the adult, the view of giving you, taking you as an independent person who can go and, and be this independent journalist is so beautiful. So yeah, th thank you for that, really. And so maybe we can get into one of the things that came to me, as you mentioned, is close encounters of the third kind. Have you ever been to... The destination where the film was shot. I don't remember. I don't know. For, oh, you mean the the Empire. famous Devil's Tower? Yeah. No, I never have. I'm not that far from there now. But that was a fantastic movie on so many levels. I don't know if you're familiar, if you know that near the end when the spaceship was, the mothership was landing, Alan Hynek, who I mentioned, had a walk-on role. He was a consultant to the film. So there's a beautiful shot where the camera moves in on Heineck with his famous pipe. He smoked a pipe often. He's now gone. And he and the camera comes in on it. The average viewer wouldn't know who it was. But if you knew the inside of ufology, you would know that was Heineck. And by the way, the other another great researcher that we, we could certainly be glad to talk about would be Jacques Vallée, the French astronomer, who was a consultant to the film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And the, the scientist in the film, Monsieur Lacan, I believe his name was, played by Francis Truffaut, great actor. And 
a very great role. Lacombe understood there was something about the sound that would bring these in. So there was that. So Valet was a consultant to the film. And there's an interesting background on this. Spielberg and Valet got to know each other, spent a lot of time talking. Valet sort of dared to suggest to Spielberg, sir, this is your project. You know how to do it. I would strongly invite you to consider, he said, not defining it as extraterrestrial. Leave that open. There's some other kind of intelligence that's coming in. And frankly, I mean, there's some, we don't know what it is. Let's let, consider letting that be the story. Don't typecast it as flying saucers, aliens, outer space. And Spielberg, I would say to his credit, says, Jacques, I agree with you. And I would also say that based on the evidence you've introduced me to and the evidence I've studied on my own, I think it is not clear that this is extraterrestrial. But I work in Hollywood, and my job is to deliver a movie that will resonate with the expectation that this is extraterrestrial. And Valet said, I understand entirely. I just wanted to make the pitch. And that is a great reminder because... And Valet has gone on, by the way, to be the chief exponent of the idea that these may not be extraterrestrial in the classical sense. And in many senses of the of it, we find evidence that the there are parallels between the contemporary UFO phenomenon that began in 1947, officially with Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting over Mount Rainier, and, and human interactions with a kind of numinous other that is accounted for in mythologies and folklores throughout the world. Valet wrote a famous book called Passport to Magonia, Magonia being a legendary folkloric, or folk, a site beyond the clouds from mythology, and came up with early precursors, for example, of the alien abduction phenomenon in mythology from the 14th century, the 8th century. So that was a major turning point in UFO research when Valet came in after the ET hypothesis was pretty much the main expectation of those who took the phenomenon seriously. Valet came in and said, let us not be too quick. Let us keep our minds open. Let us just look at where the evidence takes us. And he, he put, he's put forward a rather complex and subtle analysis over the years, but this is the kind of stuff to me that just absolutely fascinates me because it, it complex. It allows the phenomenon to be as complex and subtle as it is. Yeah. It's, you actually turned me on to, to Jack Ballet. I recently read one of his articles in, in Wired and went down to hearing, hearing a few talks. I believe he has now made public a lot of the archives he has collected over the years of a, a lot of sightings and a lot of data. He's a data guy. He's a scientist and statistician. And so I think it's this Rice University. I for, forget the name of the actual archive, but I think just last year they've made those archives public so people can yes, go. Yes, they've gone down to, there's a great piece of work happening right now at Rice University in Houston. Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, K-R-I-P-A-L, is truly a leader in this field. Not the field of UFO studies so much, but in religious studies, 
is opening the field of religious studies and folkloric studies and psychology. He's held some of the major conferences bringing together scholars from numerous fields. So he has arranged for all of Jacques Vallée's papers, his vast library, to go to Rice University, and the papers will be made available at a certain point. Whitley Strieber has also deeded the large number of letters that he and his late wife, Ann Strieber, received in response to communion. Maybe we'll talk about Whitley because the communion phenomenon was a big, this book, his book, his book, Communion, was a huge, it was a literary event, and it was also a significant defining event for UFO studies. So Whitley Strieber's papers have gone there. I believe Ed May, who is a leading paranormal parapsychology researcher. There may be a couple of others. But anyway, yeah, Rice University is an unexpected meeting point for a new kind of scholarship that's including the paranormal and parapsychological stuff, which at this point, I don't see how we eliminate it from the data. I know there's still debate in the field of of UFO studies, especially about the phenomenon, for example, of Skinwalker Ranch, whether that is should be included in this phenomenon or is that something separate? And these are the kinds of judgment calls that make the field fascinating to study. Yes, yes. I mean, there are a lot of places where we can take this, but one of the things that you said in, in context of what you're mentioning at an institute like Rice, where all this data is now being publicly made available, and there is this opening where it's not taboo anymore, and they want to welcome the new generation of people without destroying their careers to openly study this stuff. A word that you used while describing Jack Wallet was expectation, right? That the, there has been this expectation in our culture, whether it's the government or the intelligence agencies, or it's the people who want to debunk UFOs or want to believe in the UFOs, they have this set kind of expectation. It's either the flying saucers or this is something that we can just dis- dismiss and go about right. our daily life. And I think that your book was what I loved about your interview with Jeffrey Mishlov. And we'll put all of this, by the way, in the show notes, the archive at Rice University and Keith's interview. What I loved, Keith, was that it just, there were just so, so many perspectives that you offered in that short conversation. And I think that was the thesis of your books. And what I loved was you did not dismiss anything. Everything was on the table. And to me, that that was like a form of love and creativity to just at least allow and hear all the voices and then perhaps use the empirical mind to go after it. But anyways, maybe you can say something about, if you like, of this expectation and how, if you've seen that shift and what are the downsides to such an expectation? Valet gets credit for being the first to sort of explore the sense in which this could be a phenomenon that is, in some sense, intending to shape our expectation of that, that is leading us to believe that it is extraterrestrial and fitting the expectation of the times. He made the, his lineage of research explored the idea, for example, that in the Middle Ages, angels were comprehensible because of the religious 
consciousness of the time, the religious mythology of the time. Therefore, a phenomenon that now presents itself as technological because we expect technology to be the most real at a previous time in history presented itself as religious and consistent with Christian belief in angels. And so he introduced the famous Fatima visionary experience of a golden orb in the sky seen by three young Catholic girls and eventually by thousands of people in Portugal, the Fatima sighting. He connected the UFO with religious mythology and with interactions between humans and alien-type beings throughout history. So he was the first to really represent the idea that this could be a continuing phenomenon that has a kind of stake in our belief. For example, in the abduction, in the alien abductions, which famously began with Betty and Barney Hill in the 1960s, a scenario took place where people would be taken out of their cars or out of their bedrooms. They would experience paralysis by beings connected with apparent craft. I often use the word apparent or seeming, but I eventually dropped that because they that's what they appear to be. And so it's sort of redundant to keep saying seemingly or apparently, but craft. And then there's a period of missing time and the interactions involve medical procedures that are apparently done on the humans by aliens, especially gray aliens. So Valet was one of the first to say, this is what people see. Yes. It's what they're being shown. So he introduced the idea that these seemingly ham-handed medical examinations, which really don't make much sense from a strictly literal standpoint, as Valet once said, what kind of medical students, interplanetary medical students are these, that they need to introduce such large degrees of trauma in order to take a few genetic specimens when they could easily knock off a genetic center in Los Angeles or New York or Miami to get all the genetic material they needed to create the hybrid race that they are leading human abductees to think that they're creating. So Valet introduced the level of complication in the plot, that the phenomenon is real, and it is in some sense leading us to believe certain things are going on, like the creation of a hybrid race. Now, it's also possible these are real events that are happening, and there is a hybrid race being created. But again, this question of expectation is always important to bear in mind that what witnesses are being shown or what witnesses see could very well be what they're being shown. And to bear in mind that not to take everything literally, to understand that the phenomenon is real, but its intentions are unclear. And so in that, so to go back to what you were saying, I have had an orientation to be willing to listen to practically every researcher and to be open to various viewpoints. I'm kind of the viewpoint that nobody's really capable of being 100% wrong. And when you start with that perspective, that practically no one is capable of being 100% wrong, the other side of that is maybe they'll have a partial truth. So there are researchers who, in some respects, I don't find credible, who put forward views I don't find convincing. And I think there are sometimes questions of integrity, but on some issues, they're correct. 
they are worth listening to. So I'm going to share a little anecdote. After I wrote the book, the late Lawrence Rockefeller, grandson of John D. Rockefeller, of the great family, I knew of his interest in UFOs. One day I received a telephone call and it was from his office. And his assistant said, would I be available to take a call from Lawrence Rockefeller? And I said, sure. When would he be calling? And he said, he's on, she said, he's on the phone right now. I thought, wow. So on came Lawrence Rockefeller, who it's really hard to describe. In the 1990s, Rockefeller played a significant role in trying to advance the disclosure case with President Clinton and Hillary Clinton, both of whom were interested in UFOs and trying to get to the bottom of things, as various presidents have attempted to do. So Rockefeller had read my book. So he calls me and he had this wonderful New England, middle Atlantic, craggy voice. He was in his 80s at the time. He said, Mr. Thompson, the other person to call me, Mr. Thompson, besides my sixth grade teacher, (laughs) he said, Mr. Thompson, I've got your book here. And I just want to say, you don't seem to have any enemies. And I thought, what do you mean? You don't seem to be fighting with anybody. And I said, oh, I see what you're saying. No, you're right. Well, I said, you could talk to my ex-wife. I don't think she's my enemy, but I, you could probably find some people <laughs> not their favorite person. But yeah, I don't have enemies in this field. He said, there are so many enemies in this field, aren't there? There are. And I said, by the way, would you call me Keith? He said, if you would call me Lawrence. And so the significance of the story was he said, I am putting together a small group of people, and I'd like to invite you to join us at a site in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in about two months. And it turned out to be a family ranch that he had. And he said, we're going to put together a small group to brainstorm, trying to convince President Clinton to push the ball forward on disclosure. Would you be interested and willing to participate in that? And I avoided the satirical response, which would have been, let me check my schedule and I'll have my people get back to your people. I said, I would be delighted. I would be honored. And interestingly, he said, would you be willing to come a day early? Because I'm sitting here with your book. You cover so much. And I say this not to be self-congratulatory, but it's a question of recognition. He said, you cover so much and you seem to cover it with such fairness and equal, even handedness. The piece I really want to explore with you and get a handle on, apart from disclosure, is what is the role of human consciousness in all of this? That is a theme of your work. And I said, it is indeed. And and in fact, I explore likenesses between the new, for example, the near-death experience and the abduction experience. I'm not the only one who's done so. Dr. Ken Ring also did so. John Mack. A likenesses between the UFO experience and shamanic encounters. I am interested in broadening the framework to, to follow where the data leads. As my sixth grade teacher said, follow the evidence wherever it goes. Could it be that the contemporary UFO phenomenon, it's possible it's extraterrestrial? I concede that, and I don't, it's not a concession. It's an acknowledgement. It's also possible it's not extraterrestrial or that it's not entirely extraterrestrial or what we mean by extraterrestrial is not even clear. And the analogies among 
other paranormal, parapsychological, deep reality questions are unavoidable. And that's so, in a long story short, with Rockefeller, I went to this conference. He did attempt to push the wall forward with, with the disclosure, got pretty far, got the government to revisit the famous Roswell case. And we could talk about the Roswell crash, if you'd like, just to sort of put that on the table. But that was the one that Rockefeller, that we decided at Jackson Hole, to keep the conversation very focused, try to use Roswell as the paradigm case for disclosure. The long and short of it was that the federal, that the people in the Department of Defense and the Air Force, in effect, saw us coming. And they knew that Roswell was going to be the focal point. And so they said, yes, we'll look and we'll let you know what we find. Sure enough, they reported back, we looked, we haven't found anything. And so that really became the end as far as Rockefeller was able to take it. What was discovered, though, was that a large amount of data, paperwork associated with the Roswell crash, something in 1947 in Ju- early July crashed near Roswell. It's widely suspected by many in the UFO research field to have been an aircraft, a, a flying saucer recovered, partly because the Air Force or the Army, the military, the Pentagon came forward saying, a disc has been recovered at Roswell. That was their original acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. One of the discs, flying discs, has been recovered. The next day they said, oh, we looked more carefully. It wasn't a disc. It was a confusion. It was a weather balloon. There started the layers of plots that developed around Roswell. Bottom line, something crashed at Roswell, something the government was extremely interested in not disclosing. They sent, it was either, if it wasn't extra, if it wasn't a flying saucer in the sense that we understand, it was some kind of military intelligence event that went very wrong and that they wanted to cover up with just as much reason. They scoured the desert with vacuum cleaners. They threatened people in Roswell, if you're holding on to any of the debris, you need to turn it in. Again, this is the phenomenon at work. It's a phenomenon that conceals itself by its very manner of revealing itself. And that kind of an impasse or that kind of stalemate between events that happen are witnessed and then are, we're told, no, you didn't see that. It didn't happen. It was all a mistake. It was something else. Go back home. Go back to work. The impasse, the sense of deadlock or stalemate that grows in that space is a space in which metaphysical, spiritual, mythological imagination runs rampant. And that's why I subtitled my first book, UFOs and the Mythic Imagination, because the phenomenon lends itself to truly mythic and archetypal explanations, especially when we don't get the straight story about real event. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so much here. I mean, so rich. Thank you for taking us through this. Talking about Roswell, it just jogged my memory that last year, I think it was a little, maybe a little over a year ago, in perhaps the height of the pandemic during the lockdowns that I'm going to 
watch it a little bit, but there was a whole mass of people who went to Area 51, which is associated with Roswell, where there's definitely a military base and a lot of other things, perhaps experiments and new technologies are happening around that area. But anyways, people did swarm there, a big mass of people, and there was a little bit of a conversation between the military and the people, at least it was in the news, and everybody's eyes, at least my eyes were on the screen as to what is going to happen. But do you remember that that event when that was happening? I do remember. It was considered that this could be a, a real crisis because if the number of people that did develop, if it became something like a Burning Man yes. event or a Woodstock event, it could have led to a serious crisis. But I don't know. I don't know what goes on in Area 51. It's certainly related to test testing of military craft. And I do know we're in a phase right now. I've written about this regularly. The, one of the re recurring motifs of the UFO phenomenon is something like this. Any day now, the lid on the government cover-up is going to blow sky high. That idea first was expressed in the late 1940s when Donald Kehoe of the uh, Pentagon came forward to write a book to say that UFOs are real. Government has the answers, and we're just about ready to have the full disclosure. The full disclosure motif has continued to play itself out, but it doesn't play itself out. There's no full disclosure. But we're about to we seem to be approaching a new turn in the mythology, if you will. And I use mythology, and let me just address that issue. We use the word myth in two ways in this culture. One is we say, oh, that's just a myth, meaning it's not true. But another way that myth is meaningful is to refer to, yes, it's a very deep level of truth. Something that is mythically true speaks to very deep levels of consciousness, of the psyche. And so it's not the same as falsehood, but we have an ambivalence in the way we use the word myth. Now, I tend to use it in a positive sense. When I say that the disclosure myth, I don't mean that the Disclosure is not going to happen, and it's only a myth. But in any case, we're approaching a new round of in the motif of disclosure that centers about the fact that Congress is about ready to, according to speculation, the new legislation will enable people who are within the military, who are within intelligence and in aerospace industry positions or have been and have top secret, have classification commitments to keep things classified, they're going to be a pardoned or they're going to be given a kind of amnesty or immunity to come forward and tell the truth about recovered flying saucers and alien corpses. And so there's a new round of expectation that any day now, disclosure will happen. It is different. There is there's something more tangible, and that is the fact that apparently immunity will be offered. But will those who are in supposedly in the know, going to be able to come forward with smoking gun. It's very deep. Who knows where it's buried, right? The One of the ideas is that the government, let's just say things did crash. There were crashed saucers that were recovered. It appears that according to the way, according to whomever you believe, the stuff has been offloaded into aerospace industries to keep custody of, which really 
is a remarkable situation because that creates a very strange question of jurisdiction because aerospace companies are not government companies, but they have quasi-government status. And if they have been holding on to extraterrestrial craft and not disclosing it, or for that matter, not disclosing it, but plumbing its secrets to back-engineer it for our purposes, that would be truly breathtaking. And it so far does not happen. Disclosure at that level does not happen. But it drives the momentum of UFO research and keeps the conversation going. Yes, yes. Yeah, really thank you for sharing the, uh, the story that you shared with the Rockefeller. And that definitely highlights this, this desire for the Rockefeller. And if I may ask you, the disclosure seems to be related to a sort of an expectation that will either find the smoking gun or we've found the corpses and now the truth is out there is in front of everyone versus the other side, which is sort of similar, but the opposite, which is that it was nothing. There is nothing out there. Okay. Here's the deal about, about that. Something crashed that there was great effort made to keep it covered up. As I gave the details, people were threatened. Yes. By the way, I'm told there are some people who have remnants of the foil that was, it was part of it was like foil and it's been investigated and it is not definitive what the chemical composition is. But look, if it was extraterrestrial, the logic would be we're living with the idea basically is the American public is, was not ready for that kind of truth. So a cover-up of the highest order was instituted. And in fact, it is widely maintained by many credible researchers that the classification level for UFOs is the highest possible standard. And in fact, the president does not have a need to know mm. because he's considered a transitional figure, which by definition he or she would be eight years max. And every president has been very interesting about this. Obama has had more fun with it. He goes on the late night talk shows and plays with it more openly than the others. And Bill Clinton has played with it too. But apparently, well, with Clinton, here's what happened. We asked the Air Force to investigate itself. They did. And they came back and said, there's really nothing. It was a weather balloon, as we've said, and there's no evidence that to the contrary. But I will tell you that there's very strong indication that all of the papers from that period have just disappeared. So, I mean, and it, the papers just don't disappear. So if it was either extraterrestrial craft and the idea was the public is not ready for it, or at the time it was something related to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the atomic secrets, if that was the case, you could understand why it was hidden at the time. Why is it still hidden? What was it? We found out a lot of things our government has done. We know about Watergate because Woodward and Bernstein stayed with the story and uncovered the facts. And we found that President Nixon was orchestrating a criminal conspiracy to cover up the facts. That's a violation of the law. He got a chance to resign and he took it. But the, so anyway, so it's unclear, but Roswell lives as an example 
of, it is the paradigm case for some people in UFO research. At this point, I, I wouldn't bet heavily on a significant disclosure on Waswell. All of the principles are dead. It is pretty much of a cold case as far as I can tell, but it's possible if there is a secret being held about extraterrestrial evidence and if somebody has some kind of evidence related to that. I mean, there are good stories that, that alien cadavers were taken away and that small coffins were ordered and that and there are people who claim to have seen them before they died, seen the alien bodies. But there are also pretty substantial efforts to answer each. The skeptics have answered each of those points, not to the satisfaction of pro-Roswell researchers, but sufficient to negate the conversation and to keep it alive by keeping it hidden. It's the Valet has talked about this and so have I. The phenomena reveals itself, conceals itself precisely in the ways that it reveals itself. Namely, the forms are so absurd, so surreal, so fantastic, and so beyond reach that they, the phenomenon as it, for example, we have craft that hover, appear out of nowhere, seemingly, and then rather than shooting off, in many cases, majority of cases simply disappear, dematerialize. There's a physical presence and an anti-physical presence, which is a, either a very advanced form of technology or is, in, is closer to being consistent with some kind of paranormal phenomenon that is at the edge of mind and matter goes to the very edge of reality as we understand it. So that's where I think the paranormal issues really just have to be front and center as part of the evidence, no matter what its origin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just it's just mind expanding, if I may say, of everything that you have shared of how multifaceted and deep the rabbit hole really is. I mean, as you were sharing with the Roswell issue, that Yes, there, there is stuff that can be disclosed. And if it was a very slam and dunk kind of thing, we wouldn't be here decades later still in the mystery. And that's the whole thing with the UFOs. Uh, 70, 80 years later, we're, it's not been concluded. And that's for good reason. I think you were just hinting at a very deep aspect of it. And maybe we can try to go into that, which is that the phenomena, I think you said the phenomena conceals. And in that concealing, it's revealing itself in the way it wants. Exactly. And it's, it's the phenomenon of, it's been referred to by many people, it's this phenomenon of the trickster. The trickster is, is a mythological presence. Characters in mythologies, Native American and Greek mythology, Hermes, the god of communication and messages of various kinds, was notoriously double-messaged, should we say. Hermes would deliver messages in concealed forms and coyote and raven in Native American literature, the same impulse of trickster. It's the, it is that which confounds efforts to categorize and make definitive whatever's going on. The trickster element in Jungian and mythological studies in general is 
an agency that subverts rational intentions to get to the heart of things. So whether the phenomenon itself is intentionally a trickster phenomenon or whether it's the effect of being so multidimensional that it, it tricks us, it comes across as a trickster. That is a key issue that we don't really know the answer to. In other words, is this a phenomenon that is intentionally behaving like a trickster to subvert our expectations, or is that simply the effect of it? And in other words, very much like a Zen koan. In Zen studies, the teaching question is known as a koan, K-O-A-N. And it takes many forms. A standard one is asking the student at the right time under the right circumstances, what was your original face before you were born? What is the sound of one hand clapping? Those are questions which are meant to stop the rational mind long enough and to make possible, therefore, the revelation of that which was always here, that which was always evident. That is the main description of a mystical recognition. In all traditions, all practices, I see reality the way it always was. It wasn't attaining anything. It was seeing what always is. And it takes a koan in Zen practice to stimulate that moment of the mind stopping, to stimulate the mind stopping. There's a paradoxical situation. Could it be that the UFO is a koan? It exists as a koan that at a collective level performs the same stopping of the mind or offering the potential to stop the mind to see something larger. And that's, that, by the way, that, that brings me to the name of my book that I'm working on now, which is Cosmos Calling. It occurred to me in continuing to look at this phenomenon to think of the UFO as a call from the cosmos. Now, by that, I don't mean literally a call in a literal sense that the cosmos itself is calling to us. First of all, it's a call in the sense that the cosmos is not a place from far away. Cosmos is here. Cosmos is reality. And if it's a call from the cosmos, it's really calling us, in my view, to play a larger game. I think the UFO is essentially calling on us to, I mean, but it appears very likely that, that no matter where this phenomenon originates, it partakes of more dimensions beyond our space-time framework. So at minimum, it's asking us to play a larger game scientifically to include elements that are always present. They're part asking us to see more reality and to incorporate more reality in the same sense that any paradigm, many paradigms have shifted by including more data and opening up a bigger picture. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I think you went to the heart of it. it. I think that if our mind was expanded, if our view of reality just, not, just does not include matter, but also the psyche, the depths of the psyche, as we mentioned, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, then perhaps these will no longer remain as anomalies, right? I mean, not that it will solve anything, but it will make us open to, as you said, play a, a bigger game. In the 18th century, the, you probably know there's evidence of the, uh, in Europe, 
and in the United States, people out in the hinterlands, the poor, unwashed roofs, the farmers and people in small communities were reporting that there were rocks falling from the sky. All the learned men and women at the time, which really meant learned men, because it was men who were not allowed to learn, and educated men and women of the time said, no, there aren't rocks falling from the sky, because that doesn't happen. But thank you, and drive safely on your way home. There were rocks falling from the sky. They were called meteors. It's a very simple case of a paradigm shift. And in fact, the people who got the credit for discovering meteors were the learned men and women who named them after denying that they existed. There is an analogy right there with the UFO phenomenon. We have sightings that don't come to Carl Sagan. They don't come to Neil deGrasse Tyson. They don't come to the, they don't come even to Avi Loeb, although he's interested in finding them at Harvard. But they don't come to the, although there are many cases where scientists do have UFO sightings. So I don't mean to say that they are preferentially excluded, but it's Betty and Barney Hill. It's Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker down in Pascagoula, Mississippi in 1973, two men fishing on a pier. I can tell you that story because I just went down this year to pass because it's approaching 50th year anniversary of that particular. I mean, I can tell you that story if you'd like, but in any case, it happens to ordinary sightings happen to ordinary people. Who knows why? Who knows? All I can say is that I've been asked a lot by reporters when I've been promoting my book or speaking, they'll say, are these really happening? And my answer is yes. If I were on the pier that night with Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker, I would have seen and experienced what they experienced. So you think they're real, Keith? I do. But the next question is, what is real? What is, what are the full dimensions of reality? Because you can't get certain features of this phenomenon to fit in our materialistic framework. Some aspects of it do appear in our space, but there are aspects of it that are beyond. There's an analogy I sometimes use of a frog. Think of a frog on a lily pad in the swamp. Its job is basically to, its, its optical cortex is sufficient to identify indistinct gray, black hues. Just enough to avoid being food of a predator and just enough to catch a predator. We don't say that the frog doesn't see correctly because it doesn't have as fully developed optical center as humans do. We say that it sees, we say that it sees quite correctly according to its structure, according to the dimensions it has access to. So is it possible this is a phenomenon that it goes beyond our normal capacity for perception and perceiving, but overlaps ordinary perception to some extent, which is why some aspects of it do not come into resolution. So in that sense, are we being exposed to more dimensions that are always here for us, but we learn to live in three dimensions of space and one of time that allows us to propagate, to reproduce, to manage, and under certain circumstances, phenomena cause an opening, a bigger picture, and 
two guys fishing on a pier in Pascagoula in 1973 turn around and see a craft landing. There's a great story there. These are two two guys, Charlie Parker, Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker, age 44 and 19. They're two. They work at the local mill shipyard. They work at the shipyard in Pascagoula. It was Calvin Parker's first day. He was 19 years old. Hickson said, you want to go fishing after work today? That's what they both love to do. He said, sure, would. let's go fishing. So they went to a pier and Calvin says to Charlie, is the older guy, he says, you see these signs that say no trespassing, don't you? We're going to get hauled in by the cops. And Charlie Hickson says, Calvin, don't worry. I fish here all the time. It's going to be okay. So they go to the pier. There's an interesting story. To Calvin Parker is now mid-70s. I went to Pascagoula this year to see how he's doing. How does the story seem to him now? How has it been to live with his experience? It's going to be a major chapter in my new book. There was a moment when they got onto the pier and they cast their rods into the water. Calvin had this moment of very strange image in his mind. He looked across and saw a Coast Guard cutter, an old ship, and said to himself, ask himself a question. He said, how exactly is it that a big, heavy ship can float? He's had a kind of a strange metaphysical moment. What is it that allows a big ship like that not to sink? And as soon as that question appeared and then disappeared, there appeared on the water, blue lights. And Calvin turned to Charlie and said, I told you, we was going to get in trouble with the police and you're going to pay my way out. I'm going to pay my bail. Because they were convinced it was the police. Turned around. It was a spacecraft. It was a craft. Parent spacecraft. They were both frozen on the spot. They were hauled in by two creatures who did not, by the way, look like the standard gray creatures of UFO myth over the years. They were subjected to quasi-medical examinations that made no sense, gradually put back onto the shore. Now, right there, we have a couple of good old boys who maybe were drinking too much beer and came up with a tall story. That's the standard debunker response. They debated, first of all, they were absolutely terrified by their own admission. This thing just then disappeared into the sky. Turned out many years later, there were witnesses who came forward to acknowledge something was seen. What makes this case fascinating is they were taken off. When they called, they finally decided to turn to tell the truth. They finally decided to call the police. Because Calvin, the older guy, excuse me, Charlie Hickson, the older guy, said, we could be being invaded. We have an obligation. Calvin said, let's not tell anybody. Let's just get up tomorrow and go to work. This is not going to end well for any of us if we make this public. He was precise, precisely right. But they went in. Police brought them in, interrogated them, were very suspicious at first. But then the sheriff had a brainchild brainstorm. He left a tape recorder hidden in a top drawer of a desk, left the two men there to talk among themselves when it would be reasonable to expect a couple of hoaxers to say, we got this one goal, got the sheriff to believe it. Pretty soon we'll have a movie deal and a book. No, they did not know there was a tape recorder. 
These men talked as if they had seen either God or the devil. They were terrified. Calvin says, I need a sleeping pill. I don't know how I'm going to ever. The transcript of this tape, which was eventually heard by the sheriff, eventually caused the sheriff to feel these two men have experienced something extraordinary and real. Where it's from, we do not know. And that is, that's the point. Empirically, the best evidence is that something remarkable happened to those two men in Pascagoula. Very unlikely, two men, you might say. Neither had much education. But their story has held up over the years, and in particular, the story they told to each other when no one was near and no one was observing, and it was taped. So these are the kind of pieces that make for, in my view, credibility and bring into complete disrepute. The debunker being a class of skeptic who's not genuinely skeptic. They're committed to explaining away, rationalizing, eliminating everything that doesn't fit reality. So the debunker plays a formidable role in the UFO field. And there are debunkers on the in the field now, people who play the role of debunker, as opposed to genuine skeptics. The right. genuine skeptic has very much reason to be skeptical about certain interpretations. But at this point, a skeptic who says there's nothing going on in the UFO phenomenon that's abnormal or anomalous is just not either not being honest or is not capable of being considered a legitimate reporter. Yeah, totally. Thank you for sharing the story. I think it perhaps to the audience, but some of these stories really give a context of the variety of these kind of experiences. And a couple of things come to mind, Keith. One is, of course, as you were talking about the debunkers, I remember myself being in the skeptical camp with Michael Shermer, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and, and the list goes on. And somehow I outgrew that because what I sensed was initially I thought I was being a genuine skeptic, which is I'm open-minded, but I question what is being presented. But uh, after a few years, I could see that there was a sort of a violence and closed-mindedness that was concealed. And at least that's what I noticed. That it, it created an opening at some point. And now I look back and I can't believe that I spent a few years in that camp. And sometimes I actually feel sad if I still see a decade or 15 years, 20 years later, people still having that same narrative and wanting to go to, to debunk. That aspect of STEM has not changed. So what it looks to me is that they already had, it's not true skepticism, it's more of you already have a hidden agenda, perhaps even hidden from yourself that you're out there to try to... Yeah, there was a, a researcher in the early days of the phenomenon, made, he, I think he was alive until about 1990. Philip J. Class, K-L-A-S-S. If you were to look up UFO history, he played, he was an aviation reporter, Aviation Weekly magazine, who hobbied, his hobby specialist was UFO debunking. And he was notorious. He was, in terms of character assassination, utter disregard for destroying people's lives, that's just not what skepticism is about. You mentioned Michael Shermer. 
I don't know if he, t Michael, I give him credit. I don't always agree with Michael Shermer. On his webpage, he runs Skeptic Magazine. And I, I'm, so, I'm going to make a comment. Let me make a comment about Skeptic Magazine. Not in particular Skeptic Magazine, but it seems to me that when we set aside and need special magazines for skepticism, that's generally going to be closer to debunking. Because skepticism should be part of all scientific investigation. It shouldn't be a separate category. And the reason that kind of skepticism eventually becomes suspicious, we should be skeptical of some kinds of skepticism, is because, Michael, I've never had a chance to tell him this or to point it out to him, but I would call Michael to the carpet uh, respectfully for the fact that on his webpage of Skeptic Magazine, he identifies the paranormal as pseudoscience per se. That's not legitimate. There are maybe pseudoscientific ways to explore the paranormal. Any phenomenon can be explored pseudoscientifically, but any phenomenon can be explored scientifically and with rigor. So to say that the paranormal and the pseudoscience are synonymous is a red flag that this is not because the paranormal, in my view, and the best evidence is that it is a part of nature. I don't even like the term paranormal. It's a part of nature, part of normality that we haven't been able to explain yet. It's the equivalent of, of meteorites, that telepathy happens, precognition happens, clairvoyance happens, mind-body, mind-matter anomalies happen. They're not supposed to happen. They're not allowed to happen. We don't have maps for how they could happen. We don't know how acupuncture could happen without positing a system of meridians in the body. That may be how it happens, but it happens. It works. So what are the mechanisms by which paranormal stuff happens? I don't know. The reason I, I speak positively of Michael Shermer, he wrote a piece for Scientific American, I believe, over a decade ago, where he describes on his wedding honeymoon, I believe the honeymoon, his wife, who was, I believe, from Europe, had a radio. It might have been during the wedding itself, during the wedding ceremony or afterwards, a radio that was in a drawer and was thought to be defunct began playing a song that was of deep symbolic significance to his wife and a family connection. Schumer wrote about this as saying, this defied all sense of coincidence, as I, as a skeptic, could have insisted upon. It shook my faith in being a skeptic. And I would say to Michael Schumer, congratulations for being willing to put that story out there, because it goes against your own commitments. You're a scientific materialist. So it's to your credit that you acknowledge that this raised serious questions. But I don't think it should question your skepticism at all. You can continue to be a genuine skeptic. But if it shook you, if it shook you from being a debunker, well, good. Good. Yeah, I, think, that's so, a... I think he's generally a fair-minded skeptic, but there are more than a few in the field who are not. Yeah. And I I did not continue. I'm sure that he, like all of us, hopefully evolve as we live our lives. I'm sure that as a field is changing, if everybody is evolving, you bring a very good point. And I was just thinking, what is 
underlying this uh, desire to debunk or continue to debunk. And I think it, it hints at our underlying fear of maintaining as a culture, as a society of maintaining our materialistic viewpoint. And at this point, perhaps the whole world is has this kind of materialistic glasses, which I think earlier we were talking about in a conversation before the podcast of how there are cracks happening in in this whole view of materialism where mind and matter are not that separate. And I think that's where we started the conversation when you were saying that Jack Wallet was a pioneer a little before you and and before that it was Carl Jung who brought the mythic imagination and delved a little bit into the UFO. But now I think we're thankfully having this in the mainstream. My own background is academia and I'm I left academia for that very reason because people people react and you just cannot be a genuine skeptic. The the definition of what a skeptic is, perhaps in the dictionary, is the same, but there's a clear agenda of defending rationality or rationalism. And if you're not on the bandwagon of materialism, you're good to leave. You won't get the grants with the tenure or what have you. Materialism is very often taken to be the same as scientific inquiry. We assume they're synonymous because materialism, the material, materialistic science has succeeded in doing a lot of stuff very effectively. We've sent people to the moon. We've created watches and small phones called smartphones. I mean, material, the materialist worldview doesn't, it isn't wrong. Let's put it this way. It's not that it's false. It's simply not adequate to the, to cover all of reality. It, It just does not conform to the data. And it's not simply because of paranormal phenomena. Paranormal phenomena are definitely crack holes in the materialist worldview. The idea of materialism is essentially that the world, all of reality is, is, consists of essentially dead matter in very small pieces called particles and very small. And that the question that is considered the heart is called the hard question of consciousness. The hard problem is how do we get consciousness? Bernardo Castro, philosopher from the Netherlands, has just been absolutely remarkable in the past decade and in the books he's written on pointing out the fact that it's free. There's no question. The question should not be, how do we get consciousness out of dead matter? First of all, that is a question. How do we get consciousness out of dead matter? And on the face of it, that isn't possible. So it should tell us that the primary thing to look at, what is the primary datum? The primary data point of existence is experience. It's consciousness. We wake up and we are aware that this is, that reality exists, that we are aware that we're conscious. So consciousness is the ground. And the question is, then how do we come to believe? Is it necessary to even posit a second category called matter? Or is matter best more accurately in terms of parsing? principle of parsimony from the standpoint of the simplest explanation is that matter is a form of consciousness. In any case, these are the kind of questions that are implicit in the UFO thing. They're not talked about widely. 
they're not considered front and center because it's a phenomenon that is, it's data-driven, empirically driven. But we're not going to, I think, explain uh, the phenomenon or even ordinary reality unless we reverse and come to some new understandings that I think are actually happening. I think that we're living in a time when the materialist worldview is showing so many cracks that... Yeah. And if I may, Keith, I, and I think we, we had this conversation about Bernardo, and I love his articulation of what he articulates. I mean, in a way, he's not giving a new message, but he's giving it in a, he's coming, he's a, a product of the very paradigm. And I think he does, he's very gifted at just, he's just slaying things left and right. So, yes. But in, but in the spiritual traditions and the perennial traditions, I mean, this, there are other facets of it which I think Bernardo is very open-minded. He hasn't gone into it, but for example, is the basic nature of reality that of goodness. And I've seen some of his conversations where he doubts that, but what I love about him is that he's so open-minded and so open to having these really long and very deep conversations with anyone from spiritual luminaries to scientists to and I'm really excited to see what kind of new work over time co- continues to produce. But I, I did want to say that materialism, when you were saying that materialism has produced good things, I think maybe perhaps it's a little different. It is that actually because materialism is not the reality, maybe we assume that when we make a watch or we make, I don't know, a, a spacecraft or an aeroplane, it is, in fact, a product of materialism. I think materialism is just a, a narrative on top of however reality functions. And, and so, in fact, even the person who claims to be a hardcore materialist might, might be a genius. And they're trying to explain in a linear thinking way that's how an invention or an insight takes place. But in most cases, I think... It is, in fact, nonlinear. Does that land with you? Yeah, it really does. And in fact, I would, I found myself thinking, hearing myself when I said, it's not that materialism isn't wrong because it's not that materialism is mistaken because it has made possible all kinds of successful enterprises. Persons working within a materialist framework, but who also understand the laws of nature and effectively work with laws of scientific procedure in a way that are successful and they believe in that they're doing it as materialists, it does not mean it's the materialist method that is accomplishing that. I mean, what's great about Bernardo Castrop and Donald Hoffman both is that they account for all of the phenomena that materialist science claims to account for, the mathematical precision, for example, of reality. Time space, the role, a role for time space. But you, in both cases, they don't believe it is necessary to posit a role outside of experience or consciousness or presence. So you're exactly right. This is not, these are not the great scientific accomplishments that are done in the name of materialist science are not necessarily accomplished through materialist insight. Right, right. Another theme, I mean, this is such a rich terrain here. So something that you were speaking earlier about is the similarity between 
let's say, paranormal and spiritual experiences and historical events that seem very much in line with the versatility of the UFO phenomena. And I think you were talking about the Fatima sightings. And then another thing that I actually heard from Jack Fillet was that St. Francis of Assisi saw or had an interaction with an object that would be similar to perhaps a saucer. And so, so there are many of those. I just wanted to maybe look at some of the other traditions or other places in the world where this is normal. So like referring back to the Indian civilization, this, I don't know how they take the UFO phenomena, but other worldly beings and other realms is something that everybody in that culture seems to be born with. It has its downsides as well because it becomes oftentimes become part of like a religion and history. Yes. Which perhaps connects with hermeneutics that I hope we'll talk again. But at least it allows with an openness for the possibility to interact with those phenomena and they don't become so much alien. And maybe if you have any comments, but I, I would just end with saying that I've been studying a tradition which is actually, in fact, from a place I was born in, which is Kashmir in northern, contemporary northern India and Pakistan. And when I was there, I didn't know about the spiritual tradition that existed there called Kashmir Shaivism. But it's a non-dual tradition, which has yeah. become very popular here on the Western continent. And as I've been studying it, I've come to see that they recognize a hundred, what they call the 118 worlds in their geography of their study. Of course, it is a spiritual geography, but they study a lot about different levels of reality and other realms. And they, they keep coming back with this number of 118. And it's not that the number is fixed, but as they say, this is what we have explored. And they, they, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So it's quite fascinating. And they have a very different map that actually ties down with our perception and that the perception needs to be transformed to be able to perceive these other realms. So, so anyways, th th this goes back to the, even when we look at historical events of, let's say, St. Francis or Fatima, we try to interpret with where our own perception is at. And oftentimes in these tradition, it requires an evolution of our own perception before we can perceive at least the way, let's say, St. Francis of Assisi, or in the case of Kashmir Shaivism, the ancient sages perceived these other realms and our relationship with them. So yeah, anyways, I just threw it out there. You can take it in any direction or if anything comes to you. There is so much there to look at. I think you're touching on the sense in which our culture has had an official mythology, scientific materialism in this, uh, of the Enlightenment for, yeah. what, 500 years? has promulgated a view of the world that is strikingly different from the view of the rest of mythologies of the world. The great chain of being, the idea of intermediate realms, of phenomena that, that suggest matter, if we want to identify matter, has forms that can be called subtle material. I mean, we have such an impoverished cosmology, an impoverished worldview as a result of scientific materialism, a narrowing down 
no, with very little appreciation for the nature of being and the nature of presence and a commitment to getting rid of metaphysics, metaphysical perspective, as if that is not a metaphysical commitment itself, the idea to get rid of metaphysics. So what we're, what I think the phenomenon is essentially doing, the reason I call it a call from the cosmos, it's calling on us in effect. I'm not saying the cosmos is sending a message, but cosmos being a larger than we understand it to be is revealing itself to us as larger than we expect, larger than we know. There are more realms to be, more realms of being, and there's more to inhabit that's always here. And so what we find is people having profound, maybe non-dual experiences. They're having experiences of other realms and do not, we do not have the kind of psychologies in place and cosmologies in place to make it intelligible. So the average abductee or experiencer is left on his own or her own attempting to accommodate and account for an encounter with levels of being which in previous ages, previous worldviews would have been understood to be part of the norm. So we are, for all of the evolution of our worldview that we can be grateful for, and there's much to be grateful for about contemporary science, medicine, health, and public health especially. So I'm understanding of education and emotional intelligence. There's so much to be grateful for advances in our understanding of the human psyche, but in many ways, we're just in kindergarten. And I think Jung's maps, what's interesting about Jung, near the end of his life, he became far more convinced of what he, in the reality, what he called the objective psyche, that rather than consciousness being inside the the body and the world are in consciousness. And he began to speak of the collective and the personal unconscious. His map of the collective and personal unconscious, he began to see it really as a map of nature itself. So are we seeing it? We're seeing a time, Kanan, when the material from the personal unconscious and collective unconscious, if you will, is emerging into a direct encounter with the rational. Our society, our culture is fixated on rational, egoic intelligence as being the extent of reality. And what's happening is reality is saying, no, there's more. You call it the unconscious. It's always been here and you've not been conscious of it. That doesn't make it the unconscious. It makes it part of consciousness that you haven't reckoned with. And it's not to say that the UFO is here to teach us something a lesson to hold the the sword to our throat. It's to simply, what it is, it's a greater reality that is making itself known as part of what is always real. So I say it's a call from the cosmos, whether it literally is, if it is extraterrestrials, then the call from the cosmos is, hey, you live in a bigger cosmic neighborhood than you guys thought. If it's not that, if it's metaphysically a call from the cosmos, it's saying your space-time continuum is a nice story. That's a sliver of what's real. Fasten your seatbelts. There's more being to being, and 
welcome to school. Class is in session. In that sense, it's a call from the cosmos. So the UFO phenomenon itself is not the sole call from the cosmos. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of near-death experiences are now part of the collect, are now conscious. See, that's the key. I had an experience, I've talked with you previously, that was decisive, an encounter with death off the coast of Hawaii while body surfing, out of my body, hearing things that were not possible. I came to realize consciousness is not generated by the body. Consciousness uses the brain and body as an interface. That's a fundamental shift that happens right there. When people say, Keith, have you ever had a UFO experience? And I go, not by the definition of of the UFO mythology since 1947. No, I've not seen anything in the sky that didn't seem to belong there. I've never been hauled inside any kind of a non-ordinary craft. But if you define the UFO phenomenon as a frame that includes, so if you define the UFO phenomenon as a contemporary filter or frame of reference for a wide range of larger reality phenomena than the near-death experience, comes into play, the luminosity of that experience, the shamanic world comes into play. Shamans have historically been the orchestrators of beings in different realms, and much of the abduction experience is very much like the shamanic. And for that matter, what Christianity called angels and demons, prior to Christianity, Human mythology had a daimonic realm. Prior to Christian theology demonizing the daimonic, it was understood that we lived in a populated, animated universe with beings with different levels of embodiment. And so from that kind of perspective, it appears we may be in a process of recovering ground of true being. And that, I think, brings up non-dual. And in fact, it is no small side story that non-duality is the really big thing right now in spiritual circles, because people are having more and more, more and more people are experiencing phenomena that can best be explained in terms of the great non-dual traditions. Dzogchen Buddhism, Mahayana, not Mahayana, a Mahamudra, as you say, Kashmir Shaivism. Vaita Vedanta, there is in our people are having experiences and framing those experiences in terms of the teachings of the great non dual traditions. And that is very. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that uh, I love everything that you said. I think that what, uh, what I'm understanding from the terrain that we're covering is that the UFO phenomena is part of. The struggle has been is to make it very specialized, which has been the challenge of our civilization here in the West, in, even in academia, that we've become so specialized as we, the more educated we become, the more rational we become. Yes. And, and what we've been talking about with spiritual experiences and the, all this stuff is interrelated and interweaves. And ultimately, there, there are no silos and boxes, right? These are just categorizations for our convenience, and maybe you have taken it a little too far. But yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But you hinted at some very deep themes, and I think one of the themes was that 
as the top, as the, I love the title of your book, the future of reality. And that the being is trying to show that there are deeper dimensions and we're being called to, to show up for that. And in a way it's very exciting, but I can understand from my own journey that, that as we actually consciously embark on this journey, that we have to surpass our fears of our death, our individuality, the collapse of our perspectives and viewpoints. Absolutely. I mean, that light is what I'm talking about. We talk about these as objects and that, and that may be a fertile way to talk about them. What if we see them? He said, what if we see the UFOs windows? The UFO is a window. If that is a new idea to anyone watching this, just take that away. You, you, you may have come to this conversation thinking, what do we make of these objects? What we make of the objects is they disappear on the spot and they reappear on the spot. You study the, the tic-tac phenomenon, the masses, speeds, and distances trans, transverse, traversed in on the order of one, less than one second is truly mind-boggling. And so when you think of what, in what sense are these objects better thought of as windows to a larger reality? And in that sense, I talked with you before we went on about something I've noticed on UFO Twitter, the part of the Twitter world that is devoted to UFO research. And I've, I've been noticing lately the sheer amount of acrimony that exists, the fighting between UFO researchers, when I, and that's the reason I mentioned the, the Rockefeller story. He, he said to me in a very disarming way, you don't seem to be at war with anybody. You're not fighting with anybody. You don't have any enemies. I didn't know what he was talking about because it, it was so real, so clearly part of my world. I didn't even identify it as a separate. So it doesn't mean I don't have differences with the other UFO researchers, but they're not mortal differences. And so I see this fighting to the death on UFO Twitter. and I sort of become to think of that there's a sense in which some people come to UFO research to identify, come to identify themselves as ufologists with a sense of membership, that they want to be part of the field that is resolving this. And the reason I've come to think that there are sort of belongingness needs that ufology satisfies for people let me name the other category that I think UFO, UFO research satisfies. One is a sense of membership in a community that is exploring this. The other is simply, I'm an explorer. I'm investigating this. Let's do it together. Fine. But I don't see myself as part of something called ufology. And that, I think, is a difference. That's a, that's a useful distinction. The sense in which the... I've noticed in the UFO Twitter world, people will often say, we've got to stop fighting. We have, and we're in this together. We have to stay unified. That's that kind of language. Stay unified for what? We can't, we can't have different opinions. Why? We've got to stay part of, we have a cause here that we're pursuing. So I just... I, so what I want to what I was getting at with you earlier was the sense in which I think the subtlety and complexity of the UFO phenomenon has is the multidimensionality has an effect which is to further cause splintering among people who are coming at it 
from a literal or singular perspective. If you're coming at the phenomena from a purely rationalistic, rationalism is fine. The rational part of our psyche definitely has a role to play in UFO research. We need logic and rationality, but we must, they must, it must be our employer, employee. It must not be the employer. And when rationality is the, and when I say rationality, I mean binary thinking, either or. The phenomenon must be this or must be that. If you bring that mindset into the phenomenon, it will wreak havoc with you. And I think it accounts for the degree of acrimony that generally tends to get precipitated among people who come into this phenomenon unknowingly with that kind of either or binary, because the phenomenon will subvert binary thinking. It subverts the very dichotomy between objective and subjective, material and immaterial. It is both and both material and immaterial. It's both objective and subjective. As my friend Jeff Kripal at Rice University says, the UFO subverts everything. Uh, that would almost be a title for a book. And by that, he really means it subverts that very logic. Binary logic has its place. Light switches either on or off. There are relative ways in which the binary worldview makes sense. But when you approach a phenomenon like the UFO and expect it to meet your categorical imperatives, it will laugh at you and it will make you crazy. And I have seen people in the UFO field. I'm not meaning, I don't mean they've been sent away to mental institutions, but I've seen people not do well in ufology. And that's what I was, where I'm coming around now to why I mentioned the fighting in ufology is, I think, reflective of this unspoken expectation that it's got to fix, fit this box or that box. And therefore, when I can't make that happen, I'm going to attack everybody else in the UFO Twitter sphere. And wow, I observe this and I think, this is itself revelatory from almost the standpoint of the sociology of knowledge. Some PhD student in sociology of knowledge should look at the UFO field as a case study of what happens to the psyche, the binary-driven psyche, when it encounters something that can't fit the binary model. Bingo. That's what I'm getting at. No, that, that's brilliant. It almost seems like you could be describing any kind of polarity that's present in our civilization at that time from politics to other arenas as well. So that's good that you're summing it up. So, and we talked a little bit too about, it's like in politics, the left-right dichotomy. It, it eventually just, I mean, that's a perfect example. Look at the polarization right now between left and right didn't just arrive last week. That polarity has existed, but we once held that polarity a little differently. It seems. So that polarity is really amenable to severe antagonism. And gee, talk about binaries. We're having an interesting conversation right now. Are we not about gender? I mean, look at what's happening in the gender space right now. Sex, gender, are there two? Are there more than two? The sheer same degree of acrimony, 
So in that sense, the UFO is a specific case of surpassing and subverting binary thinking. It is material and immaterial. They show up on the spot and they disappear on the spot. There are levels, there are dimensions of reality that we don't understand very well. And we can be, we can come at that as true inquirers, or we can come about it as having the answers. If speaking of spiritual paths and speaking of Gnostic and Gnosis and true paths of inquiry, certainly there's no deeper, more, more profound teaching than in Zen and similar traditions. The tradition of don't know mind, not having the answers, not needing to have the answers. I would have to say, can I, people have asked me, how have I not been driven crazy about this, by this phenomenon? And it's because I think my sixth grade teacher said, follow the evidence wherever it goes. Let the evidence speak. Ex dismiss what's obvious nonsense. I mean, I, 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 there, there's a lot about the phenomenon I don't think is accurate <laughs> and worthy of being, can be accounted for. But I don't expect to fit this into any simple box. And whether that's... Uh, I don't know if I, I think that people do best with this phenomenon when they when they don't expect it was Jacques Vallée who had pointed out that koan like quality, the sense in which this phenomenon asks questions which trick the rational mind, which stop the rational mind, and invite the rational mind to give up that holding and to allow the fullness of being to land. Yeah. It's very interesting, not just interesting, it's very beautiful what you just shared. And uh, perhaps another aspect of that is what you were just reminding about going crazy. I don't know if this is Zen Quan, but often in spiritual traditions, we talk about mind blown away or losing your mind is not such a bad thing. And that losing your mind is not craziness because it's a witness itself that you are more than your mind. That the mind is perhaps just a tool, right? And earlier you were saying rationality is indeed important. It's like perfecting the tool. You have a knife and you want to have a sharp knife, but I think we keep forgetting or we're being reminded that our toolbox has many more tools of intuition and faith and imagination. And we can mix and match and see which one needs to be used right now. But just saying, oh, a knife is the only tool in my toolbox that I have. Yeah, you know the old saying, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. And amen to that, because we need to recognize there are multiple ways of knowing. And even in secular schools of psychology, we understand that now. There are multiple kinds of intelligence that are widely understood. I think the phenomenon, this phenomenon is a very serious crash course in multiple ways of knowing. And in fact, it may well be that Calvin Parker and Charlie Hickson entered the very space that night, unknowingly, unintentionally entered a shamanic realm. Now, the irony of that would be there are people who go off to study with shamans in East Central Asia, or there are people who go down to study with, with Don Juan Matus, as Carlos Castaneda has done. 
did do, said that he did. <laughs> and meanwhile, there are people in our various midst who are driving home from bingo and see a light in the sky and some interaction where it takes place where they're missing four hours of time. They're suddenly recovering dreams, memories, traumatic insights. In our midst, something remarkable is happening. And the de the debunker's position, I actually, I could write a good debunker book because I have come to see how the debunker works. It's a very easy, it's like that person in our lives who negates everything. We all have somebody who, no, that's not possible. That didn't happen. Sometimes it's our parents, <laughs> unfortunately, yes. who have given us those early lessons in life. That isn't possible. Anyway, the debunker is a very easy position. True skepticism is not debunking, nor is belief in the phenomenon necessarily lockstep of belief. At a certain point, the evidence is clear something's going on that is not part of conventional reality. William James said two things. He said, be a radical empiricist, open up to everything. But he also had a twin teaching, an axiom. He said, watch out for overbelief. Watch out for the impulse to believe more about the experience to which you're open. Be open to the experience phenomenologically. Be open to that which presents itself. Something landed. Something took you inside. You experienced going inside a cavernous place. Some interaction with little strange creatures who seemed real, but who moved in slow time. Something very surreal also happening. And when it's over, something happened. Now watch the mind try to overdefine it. That's equally to be avoided, said William James. And I agree with that. Be open radically to experience of various kinds, to realities of various kinds. But where the skepticism should come in, see, here's what I'm getting at. Skepticism at this point that tries to say there's nothing going on, that's sheer debunk. But where we need skepticism, is in the interpretation. A friend of mine recently pointed out, well, Keith, by skeptic, what you really mean is connoisseurship. I said, exactly. A connoisseur is a discerning person. A connoisseur of why is a skeptic that something sold for $2 at Trader Joe's is considered real wine. That's not good wine. Okay, that's a skeptical response. Connoisseurship. A $2 bottle of wine is probably closer to mouthwash. Okay. Likewise, so discernment has its place in how we interpret the abnormal and the paranormal and the metanormal, the supernormal. That's where we need discernment. That's where we need rational, intuitive, imagination. We need all our faculties. And I don't think the phenomenon... If we are prepared to bring all of that, then I think the future of this phenomenon, I mean, if I could envision a, a way to approach this, where do we go from here? I would I have a fantasy that there would be a kind of an institute or at least a growing acquaintanceship among people who take this kind of viewpoint, this radical pluralism that recognizes a plurality of realities but also brings discernment. For example, I think we're 
the kind of connoisseurship we need with this phenomenon is UFO knowledge, acquaintanceship with the UFO body of knowledge, the old-fashioned overhead projectors from elementary school. You'd put a transparency on the projector and it would then flash onto the wall. The studies for the day, the teacher would write on the plastic paper, the transparency. What we need, the first level of the transparency would be the UFO phenomenon data. That's the first page. Then you, or else think of it as a PowerPoint demonstration. The first slide would be the UFO data points. The second slide superimposed over so as to include the UFO data would be the near-death experience. The third transparency that would bring additional information would be shamanism. So UFO, near-death, shamanism. The next transparency or the next slide would be the psychedelic realm, psychedelic research, and the meditation traditions, and the non-dual philosophical tradition. Now, that is an incredible map. Don't get me wrong. That's a lot of complexity. I don't expect any one researcher to have all of that knowledge. But what we need with the phenomenon now is conversation among people who are deeply embedded in shamanism, deeply embedded in near-death, deeply embedded in UFO, deeply embedded in psychic phenomena, paranormal phenomena, and other frames that I mentioned. That's the conversation that will be paradigm shifting. Absolutely. And I think that's already happening. And I, at least in my own conversations and investigations, I'm very hopeful, especially looking at the youth as to how open they are. And in all these little things that, that you have mentioned, not little things like shamanism and the Zen traditions and the psychedelics and so on and so forth, including UFOs, I think that maybe eventually we'll, we'll reach a point because all of these have parables and a certain kind of training can come where we even won't have these silos. For example, I was just having a conversation in a previous episode that hasn't been released yet with a friend of mine who is a shaman and has just returned back to Belgium. He's in his 70s now. He's just returned back to Belgium. And shamanism is becoming, there's this rise of indigenous cultures that we were talking about, where honoring the indigenous cultures and shamanic traditions is just coming like a huge wave. So, yeah, exactly. So, so I'm at least very optimistic about that. Also, there's... Speaking of Bernardo Castro, he's been very good. He's been very good. For those who don't know his work, just go to Google. Go to YouTube and just do Bernardo Castro and then just get started anywhere. He's incredibly generous. He does every podcast. If somebody whose podcast is about chocolate chip cookies wanted him on, he'd probably be willing to <laughs> come on and talk. Because well, that's, he, that's great that you said that. So, Bernardo, if you're listening. No, you get it wrong. Yeah, no. You invite him on because, anyway, what's one thing he's mentioned that is a really important piece of data is what happens in near-death experiences is also what happens in meditation. The default mode network gets taken off. The default, the DMN, the default mode network is the network in the brain that, that, that reinforces the sense of a separate self with agency and ability to function as a separate self. What happens with the 
Near-death experience is most vivid for people who have the greatest amount of brain impairment. How can that be if materialism is correct? If consciousness is an epiphenomenon or product of brain function, and if near-death experiences are the most vivid, the colors, the sights, the sound, in experiences of absolute clinical death, and also that means the default, that means the brain is at best an interface. Awareness is not only not diminished, it is heightened. And when the brain is off, what's the word? Off, what's the computer term I'm looking for? Off cycle, off circuit. <laughs> it's off, off duty. And so likewise, we find brain meditation research indicates that very quiescent activity in the brain when meditation is working. So I don't know what's going on. There's no way to know. We can't do real-time spontaneous studies of that UFO at close encounters. But what's going on? What is the role of the brain in these experiences? We don't know. But it's Gary Nolan of Stanford, as you probably know, is an immunologist who's really looking at the part of the brain that it seems to be impacted by people who have close encounters, who have also intuitive and psychic experiences. No, there is some very interesting, let me add to that conversation that needs to happen with all of those realms I mentioned. Let's add immunology and brain. Let's add the smarter, braver people at Stanford and Yale and Harvard, because there are some really good people in academia right now. Very true. Right. And in religious studies, Diana Posolka and Jeffrey Kripal's been sort of, some have called him the Pope of the new, of this new dispensation, not because he functions as a Pope, unless if Jeffrey Kripal is a Pope, it's because he's a different kind of Pope who says, I don't have answers. Mm. I simply have questions. That's the kind of Pope. He's the anti-Pope. <laughs> the anti-Pope. We need, the, we need more models for people whose knowledge is based on their capacity to begin with saying, I don't know what's going on, but I'm really curious. What's going on here? That's the question. What's going on? And when I'm around UFO people, and boy, they're really present on Twitter, and they're present in the UFO sphere, and they're present on many of the podcasts, not every UFO podcaster, but boy, the people who have the answers. Jacques Vallée has often said, and I said the same thing myself. He says, I may be the only UFO researcher at this point who does, still does not know what a UFO is. Yes. Jacques, when I'm the second one, I don't know what's, what it is. No, I that, don't that, know what's going on, but something's going on. It is worthy of our attention. No, that's brilliant. And, th and thank you for highlighting that. I just want to say you do a really good French accent. And for the audience who doesn't know, Jack Wallace. Uh, I was trained yes. by Inspector Clouseau of the mobiles in the 19th. Peter Sellers. Anyway, I can't think of Valet without often hearing his marvelous, soft French accent from his various interviews. Tell I have a lot of respect. I don't agree with Jacques Vallée on everything. I, there's one thing I tend not to agree. He wrote a book called Messengers of Deception, where he took a turn in the, I think it, maybe in the 90s, by actually saying that he thinks the phenomenon, he, he gave voice to the idea, a, a kind of darker view, that the phenomenon is intentionally deceiving us. That's always a possibility. I'll say that. When I say I disagree, what I tend to agree is we're deceived by, we, we, we don't know what's going on. 
And it outwits us. We are outflanked by this phenomenon. And if there's misleading or deception going on, it may be by our own sense of certainty. In other words, I think that what's absurd about the phenomenon is that it, it simply stymies rational thought. It stymies the rational function. And in that sense, seems absurd. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Intrinsically absurd. The question is this phenomenon intrinsically absurd? Or is it only absurd when confront when our when it's confronted by the part of us that thinks it shouldn't be? Yes, there are surreal dimensions. It's just as Galileo couldn't get the Vatican to look through his telescope. So to me, that's a great example. The church knocked on his door and said, We hear you're saying strange things about the moon. Stop it. And he says, I'm not saying anything that's against the church's teaching. Just look through my telescope. And they said, no. They refused to look through his telescope to do the empirical testing. They were the early debunkers. And they put him in house arrest for the rest of his life. He wasn't asking that they believe anything other than their own eye. It's interesting now, the debunkers come not from religion. They come in the name of science. To yeah. say, you're not allowed to think about that. You're not allowed to see that. It doesn't officially exist. It's true. It doesn't officially exist. The UFO is officially non-existent. I'm here to announce it. And it continues to appear because it doesn't care whether it's off. If it's a crime, if it's not on our list of allowable perceptions, that's part of the story. It's here to present more of what is. It's part of nature. Right, exactly. And that reminds me of a story I read while prepping for this interview from what turned Jack Foley on. I think it, it probably was in your book where early on he and his colleagues had made a footage and before they could get to that footage, they thought that they had seen something. And this was at a national satellite research institute, I believe. And before they could get to it, the supervisor deleted the video. And so Jack Olay was, instead of being depressed by this, he was more turned on to as to why there was such a violent reaction from a scientist or a researcher to hide or just destroy a piece of evidence. So that, and that is something that we have talked throughout this conversation is our hidden fears that if we expand our mind, our certitude will go away. And my analogy, I never, I've never thought of the analogy to Jacques' experience because I've written about his. He was absolutely, just absolutely curious. Why was that their response to destroy the tape? Why was that the response? And it motivated him. And it was the same as a sixth grade student for me when I gave my report about the sighting in Michigan. It was my interpretation that Heineck had said, it was all swamp gas. He didn't say it was all swamp gas, but that was what was interpreted that he said. And so based on that analysis, that's what got me to pay attention. What accounts for the debunker? What accounts for this is not allowed? You didn't see it because it's not possible. That response, I became aware. See, I, after Michigan, that's what people say, what kept you interested? That turn is what kept me interested. It's the constant juxtaposition of ordinary people, credible people, 
and not self-ordinary. Pilots, Air Force pilots, commercial pilots, private pilots, a wide range of the population reporting phenomena that are not conventional. Let's just make it as detached as we can. And the official response of the official agents of culture. We are from the official agents. We are from the department of the official agents of culture. This is my friend, Professor Smith. This is my friend, General Jones. And I am the academic Wilson. We're here to tell you, you did not see what you say you saw. And you're not to continue to say you saw that. It's comic at some point. That's why I do these impressions. These are, it's a joke. The official agents of culture are asking us not to think that they're buffoons when they take that kind of stance because that's buffoonery and people see through it. I just see through it. And I've never been inclined to take things on faith. I I don't step out in front of Mack trucks because I have some expectation what that could be involved. But in terms of belief systems, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I had any official training to be skeptical. Yeah, it it would be comic and it is comic, but it would be more comical if our civilization was not at a threat levels of extinction because of these very, you know, our attachment to our limited viewpoints and just rationality. Also, I have to say, there's really, uh, we're going to have to eventually deal with, I don't think there's going to be a single D-Day disclosure. I just don't. I don't envision that. I'm happy to be wrong. It'll be a remarkable story if someone comes forward with evidence of crash saucers and all of that. But I think there's going to be continuing disclosure of the fact that we have not been told the truth. And by the way, I think much, see, my, let me tell you where I come down on disclosure. I tend to come down on the side of the fact that what's being hidden is that they don't know what's going on. Say, I don't think the military, I know there are documents and memos that got released in the 40s and the 50s where admirals and generals and lieutenants and captains said things like, this is not from this world. And then the ET hypothesis community says, see, they've known it's not from this world. When I hear that, I go, that's not what I read in that. They're saying it's not from our world of normal phenomena. They don't know that it's extraterrestrial. No, I know there are people who say that the top military had met with aliens. And so I know that whole level of the mythology and that we are in touch with aliens now and we have a truce with them. You can tell of the tone in my voice. I just, I don't take that. I'm open to evidence. That evidence never comes. But what, so what I tend to feel, I come down on the side of where does my intuitive compass land at the end of the day? It lands with the military's hiding that they don't know. The military is not configured to say, can you imagine the news conference that says, I'm General Smith, this is Admiral Jones, this is Lieutenant Wilson. We are here to tell you at this news conference that there's something in our skies since 1947 that comes and goes with impunity. And the zigzag and the tic-tac and the Nimitz Air Force, it's a very good example. We have no idea. We're doing our best to figure it out. We'll keep you posted. We'll go back to your regular programming now. No, that's not going to happen. I just don't believe that they know there's something. Their radar has been picking it up. Their eyewitnesses have been picking it up. Something comes and goes with impunity. So their solution has been, it's not happening. Go home. 
And the price, so that's what I started to say. I think we're going to have, there's a point where we saw it happen with the Soviet Union. At some point, the people said, they pretend to pay us. We pretend to work. This whole thing is a fraud. And the communist commissars had to admit they hadn't had a clean budget in 40 years. It's a fake. The thing was falling apart. And Reagan and Gorbachev understood that the only question for the Soviet Union was whether it was going to be a hard landing or a soft landing. And Gorbachev, who just died, will be should get credit for being a dictator or part of dictatorship. He wasn't really a dictator, but who understood the false premise of the communist God. And that's not to get political. What I'm using as an analogy is that the lie that the Soviet Union was built on and the lie that our government has told us about UFOs are comparable or similar. And the damage that we've done to people by the abductees, I don't know the full extent of the abduction experience, but I'm pretty clear that if I had had what Calvin Parker on that dock in Mississippi had, I would be convinced it happened to me too. And I would have the same impulse he did. Don't, let's not tell anybody, Charlie. No. You know what? The, he literally tells me, I have a chapter in the book called The Matter of Pascagoula, where, where Charlie, the older one, said, we got to tell the Air Force, this could be an invasion. And Cal said, we don't have to do that at all. What we have to do is go home and try to get a good night's sleep. We've got to go to work tomorrow and get our paycheck. So he wanted not to tell. What you're hinting at, Keith, I think is a current of our culture and civilization at this point is that trauma has not been recognized. Of course, what you're sharing is not just with all the UFO abductees, but even with all these Air Force reports of people from within the Air Air Forces that reported what they saw and that hasn't seen the light of day or they were under a certain kind of authority. This is a lot of trauma. Oh, I am amen to that. In fact, I would say that across the board, we have downplayed in our culture the role of trauma in general. We tend to feel trauma is activated by natural disasters, by people who get abducted by other human beings and tortured in the basement. Trauma is far more widely distributed in our culture. It's a, and the, the spectrum of trauma. But in particular, the UFO stuff is a high degree of trauma. I know for myself... With my death experience in Hawaii, I, I nearly, I drowned essentially and saw the world. I saw my body floating. I heard people talking about me from long distance away. And I had the very strong recognition. It was a statement that occurred. I said, wow, dead isn't dead. And I was at peace. I was at home. That deep sense of I'm fine. I even went to my friends who were on the shore. When I say went to them, when my friend Mary was on the shore say, why didn't he listen? I told him the waves were too rough. It's not good for body. I said, Mary, I'm fine. I'm not only fine. Things are great. See you around, whatever. Then I come back to the body. And the reason I'm telling that little vignette is because the mind body called Keith had trauma to resolve. Because the body had nearly died and had fought dying and had resisted dying. The 
identity, true identity of Keith was never at risk at all <laughs> because that was who, that's the ground of being. But coming back to the body was, I wasn't badly injured, fortunately, but I had some severe scrapes and bruises. I was consistent with rocks and waves and sand and nearly drowning or drowning and recovering. So trauma is big in the UFO world and unresolved trauma. There's, there, I don't think there's going to be a day of reckoning per se, but the degree of lying to people about the nature of reality, it's going to have to be a sort of cosmic truth and reconciliation commission that sets all of this right someday. Because I use the Soviet Union as an example. The Soviet Union is still struggling. They'd made a reversion back to Putin and di dictatorship after a momentary flourish with freedom. And, but nevertheless, the trauma is very deep in the Soviet psyche and the Russian psyche. And I think I don't want to overplay the significance of UFO events in the culture at large, trauma-wise. But yes, you're right. People, UFO witnesses, their trauma of the encounter is doubled by society's denial. I'll tell you a quick story about Calvin Barker, one of the Haskapula. He literally changed his name. He began to use a different name for three decades. Didn't le legally change it. But one day in the 1990s, he went to a funeral. He and his wife went to a funeral of a friend. He went up to sign the register. He forgot. And he signed his real name, Calvin Parker. And the next person said, you're Calvin Parker? I've been wanting to meet you for 20 years. And Calvin Parker said, I have not been wanting to meet you. Nuts. And everyone gathered around him, said, tell us your story. Be Calvin Parker for us. And he and his wife both said, this isn't right. This is a man's funeral. This isn't right. And so they left. And in the parking lot, his wife, Wynette, Wileen, says to him, Calvin, you're going to have to write that book. Because for 40, 30 years, he'd been avoiding writing. He'd been avoiding being Calvin Parker. Okay? So the idea of the debunkers is, oh, the UFO witness wants to sell a best-selling book. Whitley Strieber is one of the few who succeeded at writing a best-selling book. And it hasn't been great for his career, except for that moment. So the idea that people report these events, hoping to become famous, no way. So anyway, Calvin Parker is a story. The reason I'm featuring him in the book is because when he finally did write the book, he got a publisher and he said, look, I'll write it only if you let me write it in the way I talk. I don't want you to even change the spelling. I'm not an educated man. If I misspell words, I want you to leave them there. Well, he eventually relented on that. But he didn't want to write the book because he was sure no one, it wouldn't come out right. They would change the words. So after writing the book, he was free. He hasn't sold many copies. That's not the point. He told the truth, finally. He got to be Calvin Parker again on his own terms. He's now 75 years old. He's got some health problems unrelated to this. But this is a man at peace who listens to country music and cooks rice and beans, and one of the finest men I've had the chance to meet. So the point is, if there's a moral to this story, if you're listening and you've had a, an encounter and you've not told anybody, 
Mr. Thompson, what should I do? Here's my response. Do not hold a news conference. Do not tell the whole world. You find somebody that you know and trust and tell that person. Maybe it'll be a therapist, might be a family member, but really choose somebody you unburden yourself. Don't be like Calvin Parker for 30 years and hide under an assumed name, but don't tell everybody either because the road of becoming an abductee of a famous kind, I cite Whitley Strieber, he's a friend, and I'd need to be the first to say that he paid a price for telling his full story to the world as he did. Yeah, so, that's very useful advice. And I hope that we have a cultural paradigm shift where a lot of people can hold that space when these kind of events happen. And can I agree with you. I hope for that too. I think, I don't know if it'd be in the helping professions, but there is a growing network of experiencers. By the way, that's the new term. People have chosen the term because abductee, not every experience really fits the abduction. Abduction is a very strong word. It does fit some of these events. I mean, these there's a class of these creatures, let's say, assuming they're real or they're paraphysical, at the very least, they're capable of exerting their agency over human agency. They're not very, they're not very friendly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, such creatures, uh, beings, beings, just in the spiritual literature, it's, uh, that these possible one has to be careful and caught. Well, absolutely. If you study the literature, I very seldom go here, and I'm certainly not writing about it. If you, study, if you want an education, study the literature of possession and study the literature of what it's called, exorcism. If you think that's all metaphoric, good luck. It's very real. The Vatican doesn't talk about it, but there's a very serious interest in exorcism and a very serious, not interest, very serious. They take it very seriously, and not just the Catholic tradition. There Demonic are traditions. Other traditions. Oh, absolutely. So that is why I use the term Christians demonize the demonic. And so there's two the angels are the good ones, and the demons are the bad ones. And that, that fits. But the demonic refers to the larger realm of agents and entities and familiars and so forth. So, anyway, in any case, yes, some. And to some of these experiences do fit an abduction, but there's a growing number of people who prefer to call themselves experiencers and keep it broad, keep it general. I would say to most of them, yeah, join an experiencer group. Become part of some kind of group where you can keep your identity secret, but unburden yourself. In the same sense that a person, male or female, who's had a criminal assault, sexual assault, if you keep that to yourself and don't not only don't report it to the law enforcement, but if you don't process that is unlived life. And more than that, it's deeply disabling. So yeah. truth telling, the right venue for truth telling is very important for these kinds of things. And look, this is something our grandparents wouldn't understand what we're even talking about. But we're living in a time when new levels of reality bring new challenges. Yeah. And, and here, at least, uh, this is a deep topic, but in, in shamanic or psychedelic work, set and setting, or even in meditation, the containers are always more emphasized than when you're going deep into the psyche or into deeper realms. Having a protected space and guides is always in every tradition I've seen, not just shamanic traditions, even in meditative traditions, that's considered very important. But 
I know, Keith, we have been going for quite some time. There is one topic that I wanted to, which I think is important, and we have touched on this, but that is the topic of hermeneutics and interpretation because we were talking, even in spiritual traditions and ufology, I feel in my own journey that it's an empowerment when we have the ability to have multiple interpretations and also not to be attached to those interpretations because I'm getting this perhaps an intuition. I'm happy to be wrong. And I, I want to connect this to non-duality. I feel like this in Western non-duality, at least this is a missing piece where we are looking at the deeper reality, so to speak, and our connection with the beingness, with the reality. But this connect, there's a missing connection with the hermeneutics, which is this hermeneutics creates purpose and empowers us also to create the kind of future we want to in a creative way as a civilization, as an individual. So anyways, for me, that is that, that this is something I'm learning how to navigate. And you have mentioned, for example, you mentioned your NDE at various points in this conversation, and I had an NDE as well. And for me, more recently, I have been looking at multiple interpretations coming from different diets or teachers or from a conversation with a friend. And so now I actually wrote an article where I had three or four different interpretations that came at different points. And all of them are actually valid. Actually, I feel like I'm not capable. The purpose never was to pick the best one. What I'm finding myself is, okay, I get to choose which interpretation I want to use right now to give my human life a purpose and a meaning. So it is guiding me how to live life. And I'm also to be open to the fact that there will be new interpretations and new insights, which kind of makes it very exciting. But at the same time, it evolves. So do you, will you relate to that? Because it, in Cosmos Calling, so are, are we being called to be creative in our interpretations to, to create a new landscape, a new future? That is a very brilliant way to put it. That is one of what I think the call is. I don't think it's a sing. For example, I don't think it's a singular call. Not only do I think it's not literally a call, we tend in our monotheistic Christian, Judaic, Islamic, Abrahamic tradition that calls must come with trumpets and with the deep baritone of God, okay? Or Allah or any of the figures. That, by the way, that's right there. We have in the three traditions and even in Abrahamic tradition, we have three different frameworks. Right there. And by the way, I've, I've more recently been exploring Sufism or mystical, the mystical dimension, if you could say, Islam. And it's as shamanic and non-dual as it gets. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not alone to say that when you get the mystics of all the traditions in one room, not only is there no fighting, but it's total silence, except the occasional laughter and the mirth. You get the theologians of all the traditions, and there's bloodletting because they're arguing at the level of what is the truth from doctrinal standpoint. But at the level of multiple interpretations, this is just so great. This is where the God, among others, the Greek God Hermes comes in, and other gods for the idea of playful, interpretive freedom, polymorphous, multiple shaped polymorphous interpretation, poly meaning many, morphous meaning form, 
interpretation taking many forms. Let me tell you a specific way this is an important issue. In UFO abduction research, I'm going to really narrow this, but then we'll broaden it again. In UFO abduction research, two researchers, Bud Hopkins, wrote a book called Intruders, and David Jacobs, another, his sort of acolyte, disciple, and I say those terms in a friendly way. Both were committed to the idea that these were really bad events, that there is, the aliens are coming here, they're taking people forcefully, and they are taking them out of, it was a singular interpretation, taking them out of their normal reality, taking their genetic material, and they're creating a race of hybrids. So David Jacobs, in his book, is remarkable about how he knows this has happened. And he says, I became very good. He uses hypnosis. And he's a, someone who's written several books and is considered a respected researcher. And I'm not here to challenge that. I disagree with him on some interpretation. That's the key. I disagree with some of his interpretation. Do I disagree that the people he's working with have had real experiences? Not at all. I completely agree they've had real experiences. But here's what's interesting. In his own books, he writes far more openly than I think he's realized. He says, I became very good at discerning when a witness under hypnosis might be giving me details that were true. Now, that caught my attention. I thought, how do you know that? How, do, how did you get good at that? He said, when it began to be clear that they didn't fit the emerging pattern that, that Bud Hopkins and I were discovering, I thought, whoa, you're describing, Dr. Jacobs, a process of selecting out, eliminating from the data pool reports that don't fit a profile to which you have unknowingly become committed. You see my point? Now, I'm not saying that's, talk about confabulation. He thought he was identifying details of the witnesses' reports that probably weren't true. Do you know which ones he tended to, to remove? He tended to remove the kind of details that John Mack tended to find. See, John Mack, this is a good, this tells the whole story. John Mack was committed far more to the idea that these abductions were for our own good and served a transformational potential to awaken us from the deep sleep of materialism. Hopkins and Jacobs didn't agree with that at all. These are bad cosmic dudes who are taking people out of bed and kidnapping people, and John Mack is putting a nice happy gloss over it. Okay, then what we have then are two different interpretations. Are there two different classes of beings? Possibly so. The point is, when Hopkins and Jacobs would say, we're eliminating the stuff that isn't true, what they were saying was they were eliminating what didn't fit the picture that they were committed to, because they really thought it was that. They really thought it was unilaterally and monolithically bad aliens doing bad things to good people. And if people came up with details, wow, this was a beautiful moment, then Dr. Jacobs would say, oh, that's just a spiritual overlay that he's created to give himself comfort. You see what I'm getting at? So this is what I became aware of, that in some of the witness some of the work, there was a kind of smoothing of details, a shaping of new mythologies, shaping a mythology to fit. It, it really, yeah, to make it fit 
See, I'm not interested in making it fit what I want. Oh, I can create a scenario. I actually create a scenario where the UFO phenomenon is serving our evolution. I can actually make a case. I am going to make a case in the book. That is my scenario. I think, for example, that the tradition in Hinduism and certain Buddhist of the Siddhis, S-I-D-H-I-S, the Siddhis, powers of yoga. The traditions always spoke of paranormal, telepathic, extraordinary powers that would emerge to practitioners in spiritual practice. And the teachers would say, don't get involved in all that stuff. Don't get involved with that. What if those powers are actually part of our future human nature? Would we need to try to integrate them in a context in which those greater supernormal spiritual powers would have beneficial expression? So I'm actually committed to an idea that the UFO might be inviting us to play a bigger mind-body game to step up. What if we train children in telepathy? What if we train children to own these powers so they don't always emerge kaleidoscopically and pathologically? I think that, that, that's very interesting. If I may interject, one thing that I recently heard that I liked about these, these cities, because it, it is true that in the Indian pantheon, they're given a secondary importance or often dismayed. I think one of my teachers said it's razor inside a candy. It looks sweet, but it's like a razor on your tongue. These cities, if you get infatuated by that. But I think part of the reason that is said is that first they want you to expand your identity. If you have a cosmic identity, if you associate with being the cosmos, then the cities are not a problem. But if you have an identity that is associated with being a man or a woman or a tyrant or something, human ego, a separate self, then you've just hit it. In fact, look, let's remember that the great wisdom traditions of the Buddha, 500, 800 to 200 BC, that whole first axial era, when the great traditions came through, Hindu, Buddhist, you name it, that was a time of fear of Life was nasty, brutish, and short. So when you have the Buddha recognizing in an age of great suffering that liberation comes from not being of this world anymore, that's a great incentive to interpret the mystical recognition as get out of life, get out of this world. But okay, that makes sense at that time when suffering was something to get up and out of. But we now know through just evolution and recognition of courses of development that have happened, that we could say, what if the, in other words, it made sense to put the cities aside then, focus directly on getting enlightened so you don't have to have any more birthdays because that's the belief in Buddhism. No more incarnations. Life, this realm is here to get up and out of. That makes sense. But also, if if I may say, that could be one of the possible interpretations, right? Yes, exactly. It was a very pragmatic interpretation. Life is short, it's, and it's brutish and short and miserable. I mean, literally, if you live to 30 in Buddha's age, Buddha had incredible back problems. He was suffering from all kinds of ailments. And people in his community trying to assassinate him <laughs> didn't have a real high level of moral development. Historical Buddha was quite an interesting guy. But yeah, you'd say, don't get caught up in the cities. Don't get caught up in being a Harry Potter. Don't be a sorcerer. Leave all that stuff aside. Those are sideways paths. 
focus directly on enlightenment. Okay. But what if those sideways paths that were to be ignored then are actually part of the fruition of human nature as you define it in terms of cosmic consciousness, true nature, truly evolved, enlightened, true nature, as the non-dual paths speak, then perhaps the cities are what Michael Murphy, the author of the book, The Future of the Body, beautiful book celebrating the cities, by the way, in a as supernormal potentials latent in human nature. What if they are, as he says, the limbs and organs of our future nature? Yes, that require the right identity and ego relationship to the ego so that you don't gain powers to have power over others like a dark sorcerer. But in fact, the cities point to the possibility of endless no, I don't want to get, I don't want to wax here, but of greater degree of, of a, a sense of human identity that would be able to contain and express those powers and perfections of yoga. So I actually think the UFO is actually, look, here's one, one thing. I think that these abductions don't just happen to people. They're happening on shared ground. They're already happening on some ground we unknowingly share with the aliens. some They are calling, look, the telepathy and levitation that are reported. When people are levitated into a spaceship and people say, well, that's the alien technology that levitated these bodies. Not exactly. My interpretation is we, our nature already is, our mind-body nature is already capable of we're levitation equipped. We're equipped to paranormal stuff. So they, the children at Zimbabwe at the aerial school were asked, how did you communicate? How did the aliens communicate? Through our minds, telepathy. Yes. Did they know they had telepathy that morning at school? No. They didn't know the day before. The aliens didn't turn on telepathy. Aliens spoke to them telepathically. They received it telepathically because it's already part of our human nature. Did the girls have telepathy the next day? Probably not. They had it, but they didn't use it anymore. So I think actually, yes, the interpretive, my interpretation is part of what this is about is to introduce us to our larger nature, to help us evolve into the next human habitat. I sometimes use the phrase, the future human habitat. It's not next week. I'm not talking... A month from now, I'm talking about we are growing into human nature is not finished. I believe that. And I think part of these encounters are to recognize that we're able to interact at that level already. And we experience them as abductions. We experience them as disruptions of our sovereignty. What if they're here to tell us? Or what if the effect is to show us your sovereignty isn't what you think it is? You're more than you are, and you're not a skin-encapsulated ego, as Alan Watts famously put it. Right. We're not that. Right. An image that often comes to me is how the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. And yes, the caterpillar actually thinks of that, but I think some, many of us, where it's a natural tendency of the human to freak out when you don't know that the caterpillar ends and then turns into to a butterfly. In this case, we don't know what it will be, but there's a great cartoon cartoon, meaning a panel cartoon I saw some years ago, where there's a butterfly 
a series of butterflies flying by and there's two caterpillars. One of them says to the other, you'll never get me up in one of those things, right? That caterpillar doesn't know that next week you will be a butterfly. It's part, you'll never get me up in one of those things. I love it. We are caterpillars who are destined to become. One, one definition of the word imaginal, it refers to a stage of biology. Of the, the adult larva emerging in its fully formed expression. I'm going to be writing about that in the book. I, I, imaginal refers in biology to this metamorphosis that happens in insects by which the juvenile becomes, the adolescent becomes the fully formed creature. That, I think, in the big picture is what this is inviting us to do, is to consider that the our own human nature is not finished. It's maybe finished in terms, or even in terms of the body. We don't know that this is the full expression of the human body. How do certain athletes, this is what Michael Murphy writes about in The Future of the Body. He covers a lot of different realms, not only spiritual practice, but the placebo effects. The, how is it that the deep identification with the suffering of Jesus leads to the stigmata? That is, that's what I was talking about. We have a choice. We have a choice to either allow the cities to emerge pathologically like that. What good is it to have a stigmata? It's not useful. It's really not a useful thing. But it gives expression. It gives, it shows the power of the mind-body organism. The power of suggestion and faith can be so profound. What if that same principle were applied to understand that that capacity to imagine and hold faith and possible what if that what if we imagine states of wellness that we this is the placebo effect i love every now and then but not just that keith i mean i think you're already hinting at that but some of these effects were already present like for example powerful synchronicities that we can choose to dismiss them as coincidence but often times if you recognize them, very many powerful of them happen. And as, as you've been sharing, there is a connection with how open we are and what we are open to and the kind of experiences that can, can come in. I think earlier when you were sharing the story of the abductee, where the thought of how these boats float, as you were saying earlier, right? That, that might have had a connection with what appeared appeared in front of him. And also talking about, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. I love it. That's beautiful. That's why I call the chapter. I'm calling it right now the matter of Pascagoula. The matter. Calvin Parker, 19, casts his line, notices the Coast Guard ship. He works at a shipyard. It's his first day at the shipyard. He says, how is it that a great big steel ship like that can float? And the next thing, I told a friend this, he said, that's not relevant to the to your visit with Calvin Parker, said, I don't know that it's not wrong. It's certainly a detail that is a beautiful, poetic detail. Here he was speculating as a country boy in Mississippi about what Diogenes wrote about in Greek science. How what how think how floating works? How what makes a ship seaworthy? So I absolutely these are. What is the nature of matter? What is the nature of the mind-body 
interface. You're right about synchronicities. They're very important because they are these breakthroughs. And you're right. We tend to say, oh, that was a coincidence. That was a... Let me share one quick additional story. When Michael Murphy, before he wrote his book, The Future of the Body, he wrote a book called The Psychic Side of Sports. And his premise in that book was that sport across the board is a pantheon of the cities, of the... It is one area, and think about it. It is one area where humans have said, we're going to allow sports to be this realm of human excellence. And we'll pretend it only is limited to sports, right? So he would hang out. He got permission to go to the San Francisco 49ers training camp. This is years ago when the quarterback, John Brody, was a quarterback. And he gained their trust. He was the reporter working on a book about psychology and stuff. And after their trainings, they'd go and have dinner, have a few beers and stuff, and they'd get to talking about the mystical moments that happen in sport when the quarterback is looking for a break and time slows down experientially. And he has all the time in the world to set up the play. It's slow motion in his experience. In our experience, it's happening very quickly. We're watching. His experience was he entered the zone and got the ball to the receiver. Okay, here's the key. The next morning, after those nights of drinking and sharing of details and lore, Mike said, hey, I want to talk with you about what you said last night. I'd like to follow up. He goes, oh, hell, we was just drinking. You got me talking. I'm not going to talk. Let's not talk about that. And Mike says he saw at that moment what Freud called the impulse to repression, the suppression of the sublime. Yes, on some moments, at some moments, maybe with a little alcohol <laughs> or the equivalent openness, we share those moments of transcendence. We own them. And the next morning, when someone says, Tell me more about that moment of transcendence in your life, oh, that was, I, was, I don't want to. We feel jinxed. We're not sure it's okay to talk about that stuff. Maybe it's bad luck. So that's what Mike realized. We have an ambivalent relationship with our supernature. And that is a play in the U. That, okay, now this brings us home. This is where the debunker comes in. The bunker plays on that. He said, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. The witness may resent that. But at some level, the debunker is here to call us, is to say, reality is normal. Reality is not threatened. Normality is always here. This stuff, why, these are just hoaxers. UFO is a field of hoaxers. I'm here to... I've actually come to believe that the debunkers are experts on hoaxers because they're conducting the hoax. (laughs) That's how they understand how hoaxes work. The debunking is a hoax. But it plays, it really is a hoax. It's a, but it's not a studied hoax. They don't know that they're selling badware. I love how you put the word debunking with hoax. I think that there is, there's definitely an insight there. Another thing that comes to mind, I mean, this is such a deep subject, but a couple of things that came to mind is, for example, there's this effect called the hundredth monkey effect, right? Where you learn a skill or you have some kind of a paradigm shift and once a certain number of people acquired that skill, which are completely, these people are not that they're teaching each other. The, the possibility of new people having the same insight 
grows exponentially. And this has been a studied phenomenon. So, I mean, I, there are models around that, that, which again are interpretations. One of the popular models, I guess, is morphic resonance. Rupert Sheldrake has developed it. This is one that debunkers love. Oh, they love this when they've got their... And by the way, I'm not a true believer about 100th monkey, but it's very suggestive. Right. It's very suggestive. And in fact, the laws of nature are not necessarily... Look, evolution has transcended itself already twice. I mean, just from the sequence, we start with organic, just from the materialist world. We, the, first, there's organic, excuse me, inorganic material, the inorganic world. The Big Bang, lots of rocks and galaxies. There's no signs of anything but just stuff. Then somehow, inorganic stuff becomes organic. We get molecules. We cross over to life. Materialism can't explain that. How did that happen? Something about the evolving structure made possible the emergence of something that was already present. This is where involution is already here. So the life force was already here. It didn't maybe necessarily have the caring capacity to express. We st- but anyway, so inorganic evolution is transcended by organic life. And then the human mind is emergent. Consciousness is emergent. No, it doesn't emerge from physical. It emerges through physical. So why would we assume there is not a further evolution, at least possible, from normal human functioning to supernormal, metanormal human functioning? I think it's pretty much in the cards. You look at great athletes, you look at religious prodigies, you look at the placebo effect. Every day, there's another study that says, oh, you know, the people who don't have the real medicine get well too, but they believe it's the real medicine. And what does the medical profession say? Oh, that's just the placebo effect. That's just the placebo effect. Do you hear yourself? Well, that's because they believe. Right. So maybe there's something to look at there. We can't lie to people intentionally on a regular basis. I'm not saying we should lie to people about what they're getting. How do you look at the placebo effect and not see the potential implications for capacity of mind? I think these are some excellent examples of that potential already being here, some of that, if not all of it, not in the future. Placebo is an example of that. And you were speaking of telepathy. And I, once you become open to not dismissing telepathy as a coincidence, then it's all the time. You think of someone and they call you or they, yes. they had sent you an email in that very moment when you were having that thought. It just happens so often. And I think the more we become open, it's very shamanic in a way, right? I mean, that's where you become open and a lot of these potential are then not something of the future, but they're right here. So, and our, and the key, you're beautiful. That's really it. I, those moments when we've all had them, I don't know if we've all had them, but I've had them. I haven't heard from someone for 20 years. The phone rings and I start thinking about them. And it's, I look at the caller ID. I don't know anyone from that area code. Pick it up. It's them. Now that's a coincidence. Yeah, it's a coincidence. It's a coincidence of matter of, yeah, it's a coincidence. But, we're ambivalent because the implications are pretty astounding. Again, we live in a culture where religion has told us we're just poor little creatures and the creator is looking for us to be good so we can get to heaven and get our reward. What if it's a bigger game than that? Right. If I may say, I mean, that just triggered something that I forgot to mention to you when we were speaking of 
interpretation. And in, in common theology, in our culture, we have this idea of God, which is an external authority out there that is making all the decision. And it connects with this predictability, right? That everything is predictable and known. But when you connect with interpretation and the non-dual realization of, of being the self of our true identity, then all of a sudden we become very responsible. Everything becomes your responsibility. And then there is no authority outside, but we become empowered that actually it's we who are going to create the paradigm that we get to experience in this human form. I think that that's a scary thought. I mean, for me, it has been. It's too much responsibility. It's all great. I mean, that's very good. There's another book, but I'm citing, I know Michael Murphy's a friend. He's a novelist. In addition to his book, Future of the Body, he wrote a well, he wrote a couple of great novels, one called Golf in the Kingdom, about a mystical golf pro who is legendary, meaning it's so well-written that she would, there are people to this day who come up to Michael Murphy and say, Michael, you got to tell me that Shiva's Irons, that was the name of the mystical golf pro. He was a real person, wasn't he? So the point of that is that Michael also wrote a novel called Jacob Adabet about a character named Jacob Adabet who had unsought transformative powers. He did not develop them. He was a prodigy. And so it's really about, the novel is about this very dialectic in the human mind between our secret knowledge that we are eternal, that we are defined by a term such as in Hindu Vedanta, Satchit Ananda. Sat is being. Cheat is knowing, Ananda is bliss. That triad of being, true knowing, and a sense of greater bliss, if you will. That is so far beyond the cognitive framework of the conceptual Western mind. And yet it is in all of the great religious traditions, in the mystical and non-dual traditions, some equal language for that. So we're just, here's how I look at it, Kanan. We're coming out of a dark period. Materialism has been a dark period. One of the great Enlightenment philosophers actually admitted around the time of Descartes, he said, look, let's agree with the church. We'll take matter. We'll take matter. They can have the soul. At least we can do what we need to do. We can keep our researches going, but we won't be burned at the stake. See, even the early early scientists who embraced materialism knew that there were holes in it. It didn't add up. They knew that consciousness, mind, was already the ground in which we could... Look, even the idea, even the ability to imagine materialism is real is something that takes place in consciousness. Consciousness precedes. Consciousness is prior to the idea that consciousness is secondary. Weigh that. So anyway, we have a secret knowledge of our connection to infinity, and we have ambivalence about it. Because we are, until you've seen, until in my case, until you, in the case of many others, the NDE is an important interface, because I know that since then, my fear of death disappeared. I can't prove that there's consciousness just survives. I don't even think of it anymore 
does consciousness survive is a question that is asked in materialism. Does consciousness survive physical death? Consciousness preceded physical death, didn't it? Would you not allow the possibility that before you or your mother were born, being existed? How did they, didn't they come into being? If you didn't worry about if there was if life continued before you were born, why would you worry about it after? But we do. But let me not joke about that. Before my own encounter with death, I hadn't thought deeply. This happened in my 20s. I hadn't thought deeply about, I hadn't thought about these things significantly, but I would have been, if I'd been asked in a class or I would have said, well, yeah, the lights go off when we die. Consciousness is a property of the body. You just would have assumed it's like the blood flowing. When the blood doesn't flow and the lungs don't pump, the heart doesn't pump, consciousness is gone. The capacity of this mind body to register consciousness may be gone, but when you turn the TV set off, CNN is still there. It's just not being watched at your house. <laughs> so I'm not worried. I mean, you know, I'm just not, I've, I saw my mother's death in a hospice. I assured her, this is after my own near-death experience. And I did my own best to say, you're headed for, you're headed home. No doubt your relatives are already greeting you quietly. My mother was in a coma at the point. She was wrestling and I began to have intuitions that were presence in the room. So anyway, we're going far and wide here, but it's all, that's why that's the thing. It's all part of this. There is some larger phenomenon. And what it's larger than is materialism. The, it's really the rest of, what is it, Paul Harvey, the old newscaster? He had a the radio newscaster over 20 years ago. He had a show. He called it Now the Rest of the Story. And it was a five-minute thing. And, now, and he had his wonderful radio voice. He had the rest of the story. What we're getting now is the rest of the story, that everything else but materialist assumptions that were nothing but dead matter, consciousness somehow emerges, and then it goes out. And what does materialism ask us to do? Consume all the resources of the planet because there's nothing else to live for. So we when we define the gross national product as the rate of our material development. No, the implications of it are enormous. And if we can move beyond it, not only metaphysically, but it would be good for the planet, the caring capacity of the planet to stop sending people out shopping all the time. Right. What is fascinating is, is you mentioned Satchitananda, and at least in Kashmir Shaivism, there are two other variables that are introduced in this triad, and that is concealing and revealing. And concealing means that consciousness conceals its true nature and then also has, which is equivalent of grace in a Christian mystical tradition, would be the act of God's revealing himself again or consciousness revealing himself. So, so maybe that connects with that even, as you were saying, this choice of materialism for, for 500 years that you've lived under is, is part of the play of consciousness do too. I, I'm very drawn to the, as you know, there's a deep metaphor in the great traditions of God plays hide and seek. The divine, because the div, everything is everything and being everything, it can be anything. And why would it not create the game of forgetting and pouring itself out into a realm of forgetfulness in order to evolve back into self-remembrance? 
Isn't it often the case? Maybe it's almost always the case, although I hesitate to say always, but that those moments of deep recognition that come to us, peak experiences, revelations, almost always come as remembering, what Plato called remembering. Remembering who, and I mean, it's true, in those psychedelic moments we've had or whatever, it's always, oh, I forgot. I had forgotten yet again who I really am. It's always a sense of recovering true nature, overcoming an amnesia. It also connects with a couple of things, one of them being the self-evident truths in psychedelic experiences, deeper states. There are certain truths that shine on their own. Yes. It's, their truth is just visible. And then Satchitananda would be one of them. And then uh, I know that Bernardo Castrop, he talks about this in one of his interviews that I saw, where he, what kind of drove him towards making this case of that materialism is baloney, and uh, which was a long journey for him. But when he hints at uh, his intuition, that he could, he just knew there was some deeper knowing that he could not dismiss, that what rationality and materialism was self-defeating in a way, it was disempowering. And there was nothing underneath it. So that intuition is what drove him to this quest to eventually make sense in the very materialistic language, in the scientific language, that the emperor has no clothes. Well, you know, um, even if, but anyways, yeah. as you certainly know, in the scientific process, there's often language of deep intuitions in the scientific method, methodology. One can they, they write about it in their formal paper. Acting on the intuition that such and such may be the case, we proceeded to experiment with this or that. I mean, the role of intuition, I mean, it's knowing without knowing how you know. That's the, what it really comes down to. And it is, it's just, we have, we've downplayed it so significantly. And yes, Bernardo Castro was very good on one thing I really respect about Bernardo, he recently was did a podcast with Rupert Spira, the spiritual teacher, and they talked about their different paths. Rupert assiduously practicing to be awakened, going the spiritual path all those years through his teachers. And Bernardo was more, no, I came at it analytically. You're right. He came at it with some deep intuition. The story, he was studying artificial intelligence and he was trying to invent an artificial to, to make it work and he was possessed by an intuition he said it can't work a machine can't experience it can't know that it knows that's already is that's the ground of being it can have intelligence a machine can be intelligent and do certain tasks but will it have subjectivity? No, almost certainly not. So that's why he is such a take-no-prisoners guy with dealing with materialism. He, he often says, look, I'm not really adversarial by nature. I like to get along. But when these clowns come at me, and he named some of them, I won't go out, I won't fight his fights for him, but he named some of the people who've come after him. And he's come right back. But there are people... That I'm absolutely certain in the public sphere right now will not debate Bernardo Castro. He has opened the door to them. He's invited them. And I'm not going to fight those fights, but they won't. He says, oh, he'll never talk with me. The good news is I feel like Bernardo is, 
is on the winning corner now, which is which gives me great joy. But uh, you mentioned Rupert Spira. Actually, Rupert's teacher is my teacher as well. I studied with him, Francis Lucille. He has a quote, which I really like, which hints at this intuition. He says, the reason you ask a question is because you feel there is an answer. And the reason you feel there is an answer is because you already know the answer. Is that Francis Lucille? That's Francis. I love that. We, you already know not that there is an answer, the answer. And, you, and it's often we do. We know when we get the answer. I knew that. But what is this game I play when I didn't know that I knew? But this feeling is that if we did not have this inner faith or this inner intuition that there is an answer to our questions, we wouldn't even be asking a question. Yeah, yeah. I often, I've said that there's a, the phrase metanoia. It's a term for transcendent knowing. Meta, beyond knowing. It's a higher level of knowing. And it is a Greek term, religious term for all of those kinds of awakening. And then we also know the term paranoia, knowledge to the side of, false knowledge. And bringing it back to ufology, UFO research, those two exist in a rather interesting relationship. There's the expectation of a metanoia. There's going to be a breakthrough. There's going to be a disclosure. It's going to be a revelation. Most often it takes the form of the government will admit they don't they know. But also we'll see that the aliens are here. And whether they land on the White House lawn or not, there's going to be a, they don't use the term metanoia. But in fact, most often ufology is caught up in paranoia. Alternative knowings, false to the side of, argumentation, claims that don't have any grounding or which can't be shown. But so it's the coexistence of the metanoia in human nature. The schizophrenic practicing a form of paranoia, false knowing. He claims he's in touch with things and so on and so forth. We have to medicate. But very often, that line between the schizophrenic and the genius, it's not just a, it's just not necessarily, it's not just street talk. It's a very thin line. The savant is very often a dysfunctional person, except in one very special realm. So anyway, human, human, we don't know much about our own knowing. We're still very young. And there's so much about the UFO. I don't think it's strictly speaking only through the UFO phenomenon that this is coming through. But the degree to which we operate on stories likely stories that we they have interpretations and we take to be fact. And we have a realm called fact. The term fact is from facere in Latin, which means to make. So there is a deep intuition that a fact is something that is made. It's something that is constructed. And this is, of course, the biggest debate we're having in society now is on the social construction of knowledge, constructivism. And in fact, the UFO in some sense is maybe most deeply undercutting the paradigm it might be undercutting most deeply, Kanan, in not just materialism, but maybe the paradigm of... Realism is based on the idea you match your beliefs with tonically to fit reality at large, outside of experience, right? Your experience is real if it matches what's real beyond experience. 
where do we ever encounter something beyond experience? We never do. Yeah. There's only experience. We're always saying the true measure of a man is how, or whatever. There, we never have, we always, we sort of operate as if there's a realm outside of experience. And it's, Bernardo is very good on this. Bernardo Castro is very good on that. That's the real objective material out there that our thoughts and experiences have to match. Where do we ever find that world? We never do. Because by definition, we wouldn't, we'd have to experience it. If exactly. we experience the world beyond experience, it's happening in experience. So the dirty little secret is, it's pure experience all the way down. And the thing that defines what's real is consensus as to what's real. And the current consensus as to what's real is held by materialism. But it's a very tentative hold. Right. It's a very tentative hold now. But I would say what we're seeing is a fundamental shift in consensus reality, where what is held to be consensus, the debunkers, it's not possible. It's not possible. <laughs> Over there, increasingly looking a little foolish, like clown shoes and a clown car at the circus. But meanwhile, reality is shifting, and more and more people are having awakening experiences of many kinds. I, in fact, I'm struck by the degree to which contemporary, the spiritual marketplace now is very largely oriented around non-duality. We're living in a time with a lot of richness blossoming, and I think the non-dual world is one measure of that. The non-dual spiritual world is a measure of that. No, that, that's great, and I think maybe that's a good note for us to come back to, which is optimism and hope. Thank you so much for being game on this this topic and going into all this terrain for quite some time. You're quite welcome. I, I very much enjoyed it and let's keep the conversation going somehow. Mm-hmm.